Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Uh, welcome back to Herd Tell. Let's go back over to the UK because there's some stuff going on over there you may have heard of. Uh, new face to the program. Always enjoy our UK contributors. Uh, Caelan Payton is joining us from over there. Uh, he's a trainee lawyer. I don't like that term very much, but he's also studied history. He's written a book. We'll get to that in a minute. Uh, he's um, director of The Speaker, a political outlet over there. Caelan, great to see you, buddy. Appreciate your time today, my friend. Yeah, cheers. Thank you for having me on. So nothing major going on over there. I guess we can just talk about <laughs> football and the uh, Premier League table, right? Exactly, exactly. Not much going on here at all. <laughs> As uh, we're recording this PMQ's Prime Minister questions just ended here about eh, about 45 minutes ago, yeah. uh, U.S. time. Uh, let's just start right there. Richie Sunak, um, of course, he does all the ceremonial stuff with the king, and he had his first side of 10 Downing Street and all PMQ's is really your job as far as the public-facing job. How do you do first time out? Yeah, so it was, um, I think his his own party, the Conservative Party, will be pretty pleased with how he performed, actually, because um, today was really his first full day in the job. He took office yesterday, formed his cabinet last night, and then today was that first sort of parliamentary bit of process that we have over here. And um, yeah, Keir Starmer, who's the leader of the opposition, the Labour Party leader, was uh, throwing some, some pretty tough questions at him, but he... Um, he seemed to bat them off quite well. He certainly performed a lot better than his um, predecessor, Liz Truss. Now, to be fair to Liz Truss, now we all know what happened there, 45 days mm. in office. For those that are not familiar with PMQs and have never watched them, the British Parliament, they sit in benches opposite facing. So the two sides are facing each other with the speaker in the middle. The dispatch box is in the middle when you stand to speak. I encourage folks to watch this. It's a great piece mm. of political theater that I wish we did because most of our people wouldn't be able to handle it, frankly. What's really interesting here with the Liz Trust situation is actually what I was watching today was what's going on behind him. Let's call this what it is. During the leadership race, we covered it. We had people on the show about it. The whole thing of the leadership race was the MPs all wanted Sunak when it went to the larger party. That's where Liz Trust had her backing, and she won. But it was very obvious now. I mean, let's just we got to deal with the facts as they are on the ground. It's very apparent she never really had the backing of the MPs. That's what I was watching today. Does they have yeah. now? It's, of course, it's performative, but they did seem to want to show a solid wall of Tory today. It mm-hmm. does look like he's at least going to have that piece that Liz Truss, frankly, never had. Yeah, 100%. Because um, when she won that leadership race, um, literally just over a month ago now, um, she only just squeaked through to the final two with her own MPs. So the final two, uh, they do a lot of voting within the party first. The final two then go to the membership of the Conservative Party. Now, she only got through on the final round of voting. 
and was a long, long way behind him um, to get there. So when the members then selected her, she had a lot of her parliamentary colleagues really not supporting her at all. And so that means that when the going got tough and it got tough very, very quickly, they were not there to support her and it became really untenable really, really quickly for her, which is why you saw that after just 45 days, she had to resign. Whereas Boris Johnson, who had about six months of really turbulent politics, was able to survive a lot longer because he had the backing of his party. And then you saw today with um, with Sunak, the MPs behind him, he ended up getting the support of around 200 of them in the uh, in the election last week out of about 360 MPs, which means that he has got a really solid base of support now in the party and he's going to be a lot more uh, it'll be a lot harder to topple him. And so when the going gets tough, it's going to be much harder for the opposition to to really dig in on him because he's going to have that that support behind him and he's going to be in a much more solid position. And I think that was probably reflected in in the way that he approached PMQs today. Um, he threw a lot of sort of red meat to his back benches, went in and threw a lot of the um, the phrases that they really enjoy, a lot of the jabs at the former Labour leader, Jeremy Corbyn, that they love that kind of stuff, talking about um, Brexit and the vaccine response and how he as Chancellor responded to COVID. That was something that played really well with his backbenchers. And I think because of the support that he has in his party, is able to do that a lot more effectively than Trust ever could. Yeah, Caelan Payton joining us from over in the UK. Uh, let, let's be adults here. Politics has a lot of momentum and gravity to it. Mm. Part of the problem it, Liz Trust got caught up in it. Richie Sunak's going to have to figure out a way to overcome it. There's a gravity problem with the conservative party. They've been in power for 12 years, no matter what their record is. Aside from that, that's just a really, really long time, especially in UK yeah. politics. This is getting close to a record in the modern era. They've just been in power for a long time. Uh, the last election was, of course, the Boris Johnson, which he you know, endlessly told us about his mandate. He's gone. So that's gone. There's going to be continuous cries for a general election. There's some gravity stuff besides the politics, besides the economic crisis, besides the political chaos of the last 60 days. This is just going to be a steep hill to climb before you put anything else on it, just because of the gravity of the current chronology of what's going on with mm. the Conservative Party right now, right? Yeah, 100%. Because um, unlike in, in the States where your elections are fixed um, every four years, we have sort of a window where election has to be held. It has to be within five years, but the... Uh, government basically gets to decide when that election is. So we've got a bit of a weird situation at the moment where our government's in quite a weak position because of the turmoil of the last month and a half. But really, it's been going on a lot longer than that. So there's a lot of cries in the country for an election. There's a lot of cries um, from the Labour Party across the other side of Parliament uh, for an election. But they don't have control over that. It is the government who can control it. Now, we saw... Um, with Liz Trust, there were really increasing calls for an election because of how weak her position was as Prime Minister. So it really depends how these first few weeks and months go for Sunak as to whether we're going to end up in a situation where an election is likely. Because um, if he's able to cement his position, if he's got his parliamentary party behind him and can perform well, there is nothing the opposition can do. No matter how turbulent our politics gets, there won't be an election until he calls one. And that could run all the way up until January 2025. So um, it's difficult. And that really does put the pressure on him because it is about how well he performs as to whether his party will end up having to face an election or not. 
and whether he will sort of have his government swept out of power or whether he can maintain this sort of semblance of credibility and stability which will allow him to keep going. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Yeah, Kalen Pe- Payton. See, I told you I'd mess it up. Kalen <laughs> Payton, uh, join us from the UK. You were writing in 1828 about mm. this. You broke it into two parts, like I did, and everybody, pretty much everybody. Look, there's the economic yeah. crisis and the political crisis. We're talking the political crisis, so let's just stay on that for yeah. just a moment. You talk about, Richie Sunak mentioned it this morning, the manifesto. Mm-hmm. Are they going to have to shift gears policy-wise? Because I know the Liz Trust stuff, look, politics and policy and optics all go together. The optics were so bad with Liz Trust when they did yeah. We call it a flip-flop. Y'all call it a U-turn. You had a great line in this piece where you said the handbrake turn. That's a drifting reference mm-hmm. for those of you from Logan that don't know what that is. Um, that really hard just when you just completely reverse yourself – even if you're completely right on the merits, that's just, it always looks bad. There's no real recovery from that. What's Sunak's first, like he needs some layups here, just political strategy wise. He needs like a couple of easy wins, something to kind of get some momentum going. Are there any on the board right now, a couple easy things he can maybe try to get done? Yeah. So this is ultimately, I think where Liz Truss failed is that she started to pursue this economic agenda, which she didn't have any kind of mandate for. She veered so far from that 2019 manifesto that you mentioned that even her own party were like, what is going on here? This isn't what we're elected on. This isn't what we want as a party. Now, Sunak yesterday in his first speech as prime minister immediately came out and said that his mandate is rooted in that manifesto so that he's going to stick by it and he's going to really implement the politics and the policy that was contained in that manifesto. So um, I think in terms of the low-hanging fruit, the first thing is to reverse most of what Liz Truss did. Now, uh, his chancellor did that um, last week. He's already reversed all of the tax cuts um, that Liz Truss had tried to implement. But also he's now signaled that he's going to go further and, and reverse a lot of the sort of environmental policy that she was trying to implement. So, for example, uh, she tried to reverse the ban on fracking. Now, I know fracking is very popular in the States, but we've got obviously a very different geography to you. Uh, We don't have sort of that vast space where you can frack safely. Most of our fracking sites are within, I believe, 10 to 20 miles of a residential area, which obviously causes problems for um, sort of ground shimmers and um, subsidence and things like that, which can obviously damage people's homes. Um, so that was obviously incredibly controversial because a lot of the areas where fracking tends to take place in the UK were constituencies with Conservative MPs. And so immediately Sunak has, re- um, has reversed that policy of Liz Truss and um, re-implemented that ban on fracking, which certainly for 
a lot of Conservative voters and for a lot of his own MPs is an incredibly popular decision that he's taken. And I think those kind of decisions are what we're going to see from him, particularly early on, is just reverting course back towards that 2019 manifesto, trying to um, do those policies that are traditionally popular with Conservative voters and with the Conservative members of Parliament that support him. Yeah. Let's let's talk about the economic crisis for just a second. Yeah. Uh, look, a lot of this is outside everybody's control. We we just did the chart uh, two days ago on our show. Mm. Inflation is a worldwide problem right now. Of course, uh, the war in Ukraine is driving part of that. Part of that is just yeah. trends and cycles. You know, economics has a you know a circadian rhythm to it of up and down, and this is just the mm-hmm. down. It's worldwide right now. The problem with something like inflation and an economic crisis like the war in Ukraine, which caused an energy crisis, is it exposes what was already there. Yeah. Rishi Sunak, when he was chancellor to Exeter, or however you say that crazy word you all got over there. <laughs> exactly, when he, yeah. Yeah, when he was chancellor, he talked about this openly. I don't think he'll talk yeah. about it quite as openly as prime minister because, frankly, he can't politically. He talked about it. He's like, look, we've got some, we've got economic mess that we haven't dealt with in many, many years. And then when you have a crisis, all of a sudden those fault lines become really big canyons. Now, yeah. he's not going to talk that bluntly now that he's prime minister, but that was his role for a long time. He's a very smart individual. He's done very well for himself in business privately. How's he address this in a way of going like, look, there's some just math here that's bad. And this is going to be bad. The UK recession that's coming, they're talking about this thing maybe being 18 months to three years. This is not mm-hmm. going to be a quick fix no matter what. How does he communicate that bluntly while still giving people hope and still not uh, politically giving people like, hey, we're going to work on this, but it's going to take time. That's a heavy lift yeah. for anybody, a brand new PM. That's a really steep hill to climb. But that's what he's got to do, isn't it? Yeah, well, what's interesting is that so in the summer when Boris Johnson first resigned, we had a much longer leadership contest, which was about six or seven weeks long. And he spent the entirety of that leadership contest warning what is happening in the UK economy and also what would happen if Liz Truss implemented the economic policy that she was pursuing. And you saw him say that in his first speech once he accepted the leadership and uh, again today in PMQs that um, we are in a very, very difficult economic situation, but he's gained credibility for spending that first leadership campaign, which he ultimately lost, talking about those issues and explaining exactly what's going to happen um, if we pursue a Liz Trust style economic policy. So he can now take office in a much stronger position and say, well, I, I thought this was going to happen. I told you this was going to happen. And I told you the type of policy we need to get out of it. And so he's now standing quite legitimately on a platform where he can say, we do need to increase taxes. I know it's going to be painful, but that's what we need to do to sort of settle the UK economy. And so as much as it's going to be very difficult, and I think it will be politically painful for him, the Liz Truss era was so bad. And he was the one that was more than anyone else warning about what might happen ahead of time. He's now in a position where he can implement what would generally be incredibly unpopular tax rises or spending cuts but have a greater legitimacy to do it and um, probably have greater support in doing it because of how bad that Liz Truss era went.
Yeah, Calvin Patton joining us. Let, let's talk about Liz Trust for just a second. Mm. Um, I don't I don't want to do the legacy thing because it's not fair because she was kind of set up to fail and then she perpetuated that with some really bad decision making, not mm. having not understanding the room that she didn't have the support to go big and then going big. So it's, you know, not not all on her, but she didn't help it any. Yeah, I know you mentioned Neville Chamberlain writing about it, and but you know these things are complicated when you go back in history because yeah, Neville Chamberlain gets all the mess for the for the appeasement stuff, but he also built up the RAF, which ended up saving Britain. So you know these things have layers to it. Mm. When we get a year or two away from the Liz Trust <clears throat> thing, what's the lesson going to be? Is it a political lesson? Is it a backroom politic lesson? What do you think is going to be when they teach this in political theory in a year or two from now in university? Yeah. What do you think they're going to be saying about that era? Not so much her personally, but like, hey, this this is an anomaly in British history. How do we keep this mm. from ever happening again? Yeah, I think probably two main lessons will be taken from it. One is an economic one. It's that you may believe in an ideology very strongly. You may quite rightly think that we should be cutting taxes, which is obviously not an unpopular opinion. However, you have to be wary of the economic climate that you're in and understand that just because you believe something and you think it's the right idea doesn't mean that it's the right time for that kind of policy and that kind of um, um, yeah, economic policy. The other one, and I think it's probably going to end up being the much bigger lesson, is a political one. It's that she was elected by around 60, 65% of the Conservative Party members, not a particularly small mandate from her party. She then had the death of the Queen, which left her with a lot, quite a lot of goodwill. Then she implemented the mini budget, which in the first day or so was incredibly popular with a lot of Tory members because it was this great tax cutting bill that reminded people of Margaret Thatcher, who is still to this day seen by the Conservative Party as sort of a standard bearer in a way that Ronald Reagan is similarly seen in the States. And that was really popular. But then the markets reacted. They absolutely hated it. The value of the pound against the dollar fell. Guilt yields rose, which made the cost of borrowing much more expensive for the government. Then you had a lot of turbulence in sort of um, in uh, insurance markets and pension funds where a lot of... Um, Investments are tied up and you had to have interventions by the Bank of England. Suddenly you saw all of this fall away. And within three weeks of that mini budget, she was gone. And I think the main lesson that will be taken is the fact that she did this incredibly quickly. She had no need to announce such bold policy immediately. She could have taken a much more measured and slow approach because there was no immediate election coming along. She could have spaced out this policy over a few years tried to implement it slowly in much the way that Thatcher did it took her about five or six years before she went really really bold she waited for the economic conditions to be right um trust went really quickly really really heavy on sort of the ideology of tax cutting without any kind of thought for whether that was appropriate for the moment. But I think even more significant is that she refused to take any kind of advice that suggested that might not be appropriate. She sacked the top civil servant in the Treasury just before the budget. She didn't um, speak to the Office of Budget Responsibility, which basically oversees a lot of these budgets and makes sure that they are sort of fiscally prudent and the right thing for the economy at that time. And so 
the fact that she ignored a lot of these things, pushed ahead really quickly without any kind of um, thought or ongoing plan is the ultimate failure of her um, premiership. And I think that's probably the major lesson that people end up taking from it. Just real quick, though, before we move off, let's trust. At the time, we all felt like the pause was probably beneficial, the national mourning period for the queen. Mm. In retrospect, was it really a bad thing for her? Because it seemed like it avalanched the whole thing. Maybe that stop gag, instead of being a respite, it just damned everything up, and then it just avalanched after it. In retrospect, is that an accurate assessment, you think? I wouldn't wouldn't say so. I think in many ways it was a bit of an opportunity for her because – she, up until quite recently, was not a particularly frontline figure in, in UK politics. She became the foreign secretary, I believe, um, earlier this year. And so that was her first real big exposure to the public. But still, she wasn't particularly well known. So when she took office, that was her opportunity to define herself to the public. So in a way, that pause gave her the opportunity to be seen a lot in a much more... Um, friendly way in a way that you're not going to have that immediate pressure thrown on you you're going to be seen as a leader in an important time but you're not going to have a lot of pressure on you there was a lot of willingness and goodwill there but then within a week of that whole morning period being over is when the mini budget happened and that's really what led to her downfall and whether whether the morning period made them go into that a bit more blindly or whether it actually you know, saved her another two weeks if they'd done that budget sooner and she might have ended up losing her um, her job sooner. So it's difficult to say, but I would probably say that it was an opportunity for her rather than that being the reason that she fell. Um, it's just an opportunity, the opportunity that she didn't really take. Yeah, I think missed opportunity might be the subheading on this whole ordeal of the last uh, 60 yeah. days or so. Real quick, mm-hmm. before we let you go, uh, for the outside observers like us uh, overseas in America, the worldwide audience that we have, give us a couple mile posts to be watching for with Rishi Sunak. Obviously, he's he's going to go a little bit slower than Liz trusted because, you know, he he's a yeah. smart guy. He saw what just happened. Give us one or two things to watch for as the news starts trickling out over the next couple of weeks. What should we watch for? What's kind of the first milestone besides, you know, making it 45 days without getting sacked? Mm, What's a couple things we should be watching for to measure how Rishi Sunak is doing as a prime minister? Yeah, so I think the first thing is that at the moment, the Conservatives are so far behind the polls. It's something like 30 points that you'd imagine he is going to start closing that gap to a more um, typical level, maybe 10, 15, 20 points. It'll be interesting to watch those polls in the coming weeks to see whether he does actually close that gap or not. So I think that'll be quite an important thing to watch for because it will really define, I think, particularly how our politics goes next year in 2023, whether the Conservatives still are extremely far behind the polls or whether they start to close that gap. The other one is the fiscal statement that's coming uh, in in mid-November, I think the 17th of November, which is essentially going to outline his economic policy moving forward. 
obviously it was the economic policy of Liz Truss that led to her downfall. So this is going to be something to watch for to see how he does it. You'd imagine it's going to be a lot more prudent that it might see some moderate tax increases and things like that. But obviously that could have its own political ramifications if he does start to increase tax. So I think really the main thing to look out for is that statement and see what approach he takes, but also to see whether he's able to start closing that gap in the coming weeks. Yeah. Callum Payton, uh, great stuff, my friend. You wrote a book called 2020 As It Happened. You could definitely do mm. a, a sequel on 2022 between the <laughs> Queen and three prime ministers. We're not even done with it yet. Uh, yeah. so you might want to look into that. Might want to go ahead and get that you know, locked down as a copyright, my yeah. friend. Uh, we'll definitely have you back. Until we get you back on Tell again, let folks know where they can follow you, what you have going on with your writings and other things, my friend. Yeah, so my Twitter is um, at Peyton underscore Callum. Um, so do have a look over there. And if you want to check out um, The Speaker, which is um, a media organization that I run, then that's at Speaker Politics. And you can see some of the writing that I do over there. Yep. We'll link to all of that, including a couple of his pieces. Uh, he wrote about the trust has left the mantle and possibly difficult for her successor. That's the one we were quoting from here. He's written some other stuff. We'll link to all of it. Make sure you follow him and keep up with him. We'll have you back on, man, because it ain't going to get any less interesting over in the UK. <laughs> exactly. and besides, that means we don't have to talk about our own problems. We can focus on y'all's. Uh, thank you so much for the time today, sir. Appreciate it. Cheers. Thank you very much. Yes, sir. to hotel okay he hadn't been here in a minute he's been busy with other stuff but we're thrilled to have him back he's one of them lawyer type people but he's doing god's work as a public defender by choice doing great work with that we're thrilled to have him back zeke webster welcome back buddy hey andrew good to be here good to see you my friend all world of defending the downtrodden and uplifting justice and keeping the blindfold firmly on lady justice statues and all the good stuff y'all do uh you know we're just doing our best day to day let's talk about that day to day because um i i've got a concern about a narrative it's not a new narrative look i'm old enough to remember um the bush speech uh that's bush the senior speech where where they busted the poor guy out in front of the white house supposedly there's a lot of that that was kind of a setup and he gave the crack cocaine speech i can actually remember that one okay uh i remember the crime bill in 94 okay Crime out of control is just something that comes up every election, especially when there's other things like the economy going, things like this. We're having one of those crimes out of control type election narratives. You're on the ground, though. You're on that front edge of the legal system, public defender. I know what the stats say. Day to day in the courthouses, the people that actually administer the justice system, does it feel like an epidemic where you guys are at? Just give me a little bit more perspective outside of the narrative and what folks are seeing online. Uh, no, I mean, it. The I haven't perceived any kind of connection at all between the way in which like the amount of crime that exists in the world is described on Twitter or on the cable news or whatever it may be. And what I experience day to day. Uh, I mean, you know, I always feel like I've got a full docket, but that's just the nature of, 
you know, how many, uh, how many positions uh, are, are created and how much funding is there and so on and so forth. But the one thing that I, uh, that I think is important to keep track of when we're talking about like crime, how much crime is there and the stat or whatever, is that I think that there's, there's some tor- sorts of crimes where it's very clear, like, what it is and what it isn't. I mean, the most classic is murder that if there's, you know, if there's a dead body on the ground, there's a dead body on the ground and there's, you know, and, and you can have a lot more certainty that, you know, some kind of a homicide has occurred, somebody got killed and we can measure that clearly, you know, from year to year, from month to month, from place to place. But there's a lot of other things where how much crime you find depends upon how hard you're looking for it. So for example, if we're talking about, you know, a drug, prese- drug possession or, um, some charges related to guns or, or some property crimes. I mean, there's a whole question of like, how much is, how much are the p- police looking for? Where are they looking? What is considered uh, a crime? What is considered a misdemeanor? What is considered a felony? And those numbers sometimes say a lot more about what police are doing or what the government currently thinks is important than they say about what is actually happening in people's lives and who actually is being victimized by uh, by this or that or whatever it may be. And as far as, you know, are things out of control? Are things better, worse, whatever? I mean, in my experience on the day-to-day, you couldn't tell really one thing or the other. It's just, you know, cases come in, cases come out. It always feels like there's more cases coming in, but you wouldn't, you know, you wouldn't be able to say anything about the larger the larger picture. Yeah, Zeke Webster joining us for for the naysayers who maybe going like, well, it depends on what you work in a city that's somewhat known to have some violent crime from time to time, so people can just kind of put that to the side. You y'all got you get all of it where you work at, but even looking at the statistics just from your own city, the crime rate for violent crime is about an eight point six per thousand residents. The property crime is thirty eight point nine per thousand residents. This is pretty consistent. The murder rate nationwide is going up, especially in urban areas. That's undebatable. But that's also still comparatively, not that those aren't terrible things, not that that doesn't need to be dealt with and handled. There's all this other crime, too. Is this a social media thing? Is it a if it bleeds, it leads media news media thing? They've always fascinated. Is it the, you know, the true crime genre that has exploded? Why is it that we focus on that murder stuff, but the vast majority of the criminal code system is tied up in things like property crime, misdemeanors, other felonies? That's the bulk of what is actually technically crime that's going on, right? Yeah. And and I think that a lot of the people that a lot of the ways in which we get our perception of like what is going on out there, how much crime there is, is being driven by people that have some kind of an incentive to uh to portray the world as more dangerous than it is. Uh, now, I mean, I, we, I think it's fair to say that, like, based on international comparisons, the United States has a higher level of violent crime and certainly a higher level of gun crime than uh, a lot of other places. We definitely have a higher level of crime and violent crime than we want. But uh, taking the big picture, um, crime of all varieties was much, the rates of all types of crime were much higher in the 80s and early 90s than they are today. Uh, We had the good fortune to live through a very long, sustained nationwide decrease in the rates of pretty much everything. And now we are experiencing a increase. Um, We still haven't gotten anywhere near where we were in the late late 80s and early 90s. Uh, That doesn't mean that it doesn't matter. That doesn't mean that it's okay for, you know, any of these sorts of things to happen. But 
it doesn't mean that things are necessarily spinning out of control in the way that you might feel like they're spinning out of control if you're entirely basing it off of true true crime podcasts and cable news. Yeah, Zeke Webster. Here's my problem. I think we have a narrative problem. I think a lot of our political problems start with nomenclature and rhetoric. I talk about this pretty much every show we do. Part of the nomenclature and rhetoric with crime is so many people, I've done it too. We've all done it. You've probably done it. You, you get that one case that just eats you up like, God, just put this guy under the jail, right? The thing about crime is, though, we have all the data in the world. Just throwing people in jail doesn't actually do anything to the crime rate or to deter crime. In fact, the opposite is true is we usually end up making more criminals than we solve. So how do we start changing the narrative and the nomenclature and the rhetoric of, well, when the crime rate goes in, we just need to crack heads and throw more people in prison because that's not actually working. And in fact, we see now with things like, you know, we've got all the data from the 94 crime bill came up during the last election is going to come up. That we can look back on now like, no, that it may have solved a few problems. It may look good on TV. It actually created a whole lot of problems as well. I mean, the the one idea that I wish would get farther out there is that I don't think that I don't think that being a criminal is a thing that somebody is. It is a thing that somebody does. It is an act. Right. And I think that there's a, a common notion out there that, you know, there's a set of people that are criminals that are dangerous, that, that, that don't, uh, that don't obey the law, don't respect the rights of other people. And that the solution to the problem having criminals out there is we got to find them and we got to get rid of them either either through the death penalty or or put them in prison or whatever it may be. And I I just think that that is a fundamentally flawed premise. Um, I think that the vast majority of people that commit crimes, even sometimes very serious crimes that cause very real harm to other people, are, you know, are responding to some combination of the situation they find themselves in, the ordinary, you know, human weakness that we all have addiction, mental illness, this, that, and what have you. And I think that we have kind of fixated on jails and prisons as a solution um, without any, without much in the way of evidence that they actually accomplish what they're supposed to accomplish. And, uh, you know, this isn't always the case, but a, a very, very many people that, that do commit crimes that uh, are, are people who have something going on, the, going on in their life that could be addressed or potentially could maybe even be fixed. And I think in my experience, it's very common when you see somebody that's a recidivist that that keeps getting arrested over and over again, that keeps getting imprisoned over and over again. It's very, very common for that person to be somebody with some kind of a mental illness or an addiction component and why they're doing what they're doing. And very many times, you know, you can, you can get, uh, if you approach the, the situation from the point of like, well, what help does this person need? Then instead of just saying, oh, well, let's lock this person up for another year or another two years, and then they get out, and then here we are, and nothing has changed, you actually try to change something. And then both the people that might possibly have been victimized by future crimes are better off, and the person who's been spending all this time in jail is better off. And so are their families and any kids that they might have in the community that they're from. I just think that that needs to be a much bigger part of how we think about responding to when people do bad things. Yeah, Zeke Webster joining us. Of course, that's a hard sell because it's easier to just say, you know, punish, punish, punish. The problem is we're doing all the punishment. There is very little rehabilitation that goes. You've seen all the stats. Part of the problem, and and as I've tried, I've evolved a little bit on on the criminal justice system. 
Part of the problem we've got going on now is, and you're there, you're on, I hate to say entry level, but lack of a better term for the common person is not a lawyer, you know, entry level, misdemeanors, crimes that involve fines, crimes that involve, you got to go to a court appearance, but it may get drug out, this kind of stuff. What's happening too often, though, is this becomes some kind of a snare trap where people start getting caught up in the system and they got to start paying fines and then they got to start dealing with the court systems. And too often that actually leaves people worse off than before and it gets them sucked farther into the system instead of dealing with them and putting them back out in the society in a more functional way. Is it an overreach to say I think too much of our criminal justice system problem is our criminal justice system is making more criminals than it's solving crime? No. And I mean, to be even more cynical about it, I'd say that the, the dirty little secret of a lot of misdemeanor and traffic courts is that often those courts make money for the government. That you, you know, you have situations out there uh, where there are, you know, where where police are directing like traffic enforcement and things like that, not with the intent of keeping people safe, but with the intent of uh, bringing in revenue so that you don't have to raise local property taxes or things like that. And, uh, you know, it's, part of it is that it's a, it's a very like chaotic decentralized system with a lot of different people playing in. And, you know, you're in the situation of trying to turn around the proverbial oil tanker, you know, one degree at a time. But, um, but yeah, I, I think that the kind of retail level day-to-day crime and punishment story is very often one where you make it harder for people to hold down a job. You make it harder for people to stay in an apartment or, or, um, you know, keep uh, keep custody of their kids or whatever it may be, you don't actually make it any easier for uh, the, the situations that sometimes give rise to criminal behavior to no longer exist. Folks, if you've listened to the Herd Tell program, you've heard our friend Gabriella Hoffman, but you need to make sure you're checking out her podcast, District of Conservation. It's a podcast exploring the nuances of true conservation efforts from D.C. and beyond. From topic discussions to exclusive interviews with conservation and energy newsmakers, Gabriella keeps listeners appraised of the latest news stories while elevating important voices. Listen to District of Conservation on Apple Podcasts or wherever podcasts are played. And part of this, too, Zeke Webster joining us, I think we need to separate violent crime from other crime, because obviously somebody that's a violent criminal, that's that's a different beast. But then when you have all these other crimes, too often we just conflate them as crime and we need to punish crime. A lot of this stuff is just behavioral type stuff. They either had a bad day, they made a bad decision, kind of like you were talking before. They had some kind of outside circumstances that put them in a bad situation. Doesn't mean they're not culpable. Doesn't mean they don't need to make restitution either financially or with some kind of a jail term. But I think we conflate those two things way too much because what happens is if you keep one of those nonviolent people in the system long enough, you're going to make them violent. And we've got the data to show that. I, I think this is something that needs to be talked about more. I know there's the trope about, oh, they go to prison and they become a criminal. There's the line from Shawshank that's famous. I had to go to prison, learn how to be a crook. There's actually a lot of truth to that. And we're paying for it as a society. We're paying for it as a government. It's expensive 
to make a career criminal in the criminal justice system, but that's what we're doing too much of. Yeah, and, I mean, the, the one other thing I would I would jut in with is that, um, you know, we have, I, I think that it's worth making a distinction between, you know, violent crimes and like lesser property crimes, things like that. But I think we there's a whole other category of crimes that it's where you, it's not even necessarily something that would always be considered a crime at all. I mean, I would say that I, I have a tremendous number of cases that I work right now. And all those cases consist of is the police pull somebody over for some kind of minor traffic violation. And then they try to come up with some sort of an excuse to uh, pull them out of the car and search through their car to see if they can find drugs or a gun over and over and over again, on and on and on. And you get these people that are, you know, charged with a felony because maybe they had a gram of cocaine in their car, or maybe they had a pistol and it was in the glove box instead of visible to the cop or whatever it may be. And I don't, you know, it's it's not at all clear to me what connection that kind of policing has with keeping anyone anywhere safer. Uh, I, I think it, it it is an expression of other political values and other political um objectives that people have and it falls very heavily on particular communities especially communities of color um but i think that you know there there's there's definitely a distinction to be drawn between when we're talking about crimes that really do involve like harm that one human being has done to another human being versus a lot of other things where that connection to someone else being hurt and being injured is much 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 less clear yeah zeke webster all right since the president put it on the four he pardoned uh, the federal marijuana simple possession folks. That's a very small number. It was like six in the 6,000 something. That number's in the 500,000s when you go to state and municipalities. If you took the low level drug offenses out of the system, again, the lower level where you're at the bleeding edge, the where folks get their first charges, for lack of a better term, if that part of the criminal justice system was just kind of stopped or taken away or lessened, how much different would our criminal justice system look right now? I mean, I'd throw out half my filing cabinet. Like, it's, half. Uh, I mean, somewhere in there, yeah. I mean, part of that is the nature of the cases that I mostly work. But, I mean, yeah, like, there, a whole lot of the cases rolling through are just simple possession of marijuana, simple, simple possession of cocaine. Uh, things that maybe get charged as possession with intent distri- to distribute, where what that means is it's a, you know, a couple grams and a scale and a couple baggies or something like that. I mean, yeah, I, th- I think it's it's an enormous amount of what the courts spend their time doing. It's no more an, an enormous amount of what the police spend their times do their time doing. And in my view, it's just not really doing anything at all to make anybody safer, safer, happier, healthier, or anything like that. Yeah, Zeke Webster. The other thing that gets brought up a lot currently is bail and the cash bail system. There's uh, some progressive cities are trying to do different things with it. Obviously, it's political fraud because, look, you don't know what people's going to do. You're going to and politicians are scared of it because you're going to let that one guy go. And that one guy's going to go do something terrible. And then it's hung around everybody's neck. Is there some practical bail stuff that we could do? Because obviously the money system You've got, you know, disproportionately folks that are on the lower income scales that probably don't have the money to do cash bail in a lot of cases, which makes them wards of the system when they probably don't need to be otherwise. You know, I don't want to do utopian dreamscape where we just let everybody go because that's not going to work either. Is there a practical middle ground here somewhere of just something that might just work better day to day in the court system? 
Yes. Like there, there have been a number of jurisdictions that have either uh, abolished or reformed their money bail systems and found that they release a lot more people pre-trial and it does not have a measurable impact on public safety. Um, I mean, the, the, the idea that the only way you can ensure that somebody is going to come back to court or that somebody is not going to commit new offenses while they're waiting for their court date is for them to pay money. Uh, a set amount of money. It, it it doesn't, I mean, it. I don't feel like it's an idea that's even really trying that hard to make sense. Um, and it, like for, in my, in my jurisdiction, you know, we have, uh, we, most people that are, uh, uh, that are charged with crimes in my jurisdiction do have some kind of a money bail that they're required to post. And most people that are in the jail are in the jail because they haven't been able to post some amount of bond. But we also, in theory, have like a pretrial release program where people are required to um, maintain contact with the pretrial program and uh, make sure that they they have a phone, they like check in and or call uh, or, like call people weekly and things like that to make sure that they're aware of when their court dates are that they're remaining in contact. And if they don't participate in the pretrial pro or, and if they like stop making those calls, then maybe their bond gets revoked and they put out an order for arrest. Or in other cases, you'll see people put under, um, they'll like be given electronic monitoring or electronic house arrest or different, you know, different combinations. And in, in my view, I mean, I think that for, for cases where you do have some greater level of concern that somebody might not return to court, I think all of those things make a lot more sense than requiring people to pay money. And in my experience, the, the main result of having cash bonds is that you have cases where somebody can't afford to post a few thousand dollars, uh, you know, to hire a bondsman to post a few thousand dollars or something like that. And then they get told on their court date that the only, that if you take a plea for probation, you'll get out today. And if you want to fight the charge, then you're going to stay in for however many months waiting for a jury trial. And they take the plea for probation and they get out today. And honestly, I think that the, I think that very many people involved in the system are aware of the way in which money bond um, pressures poor people to accept guilty pleas regardless of whether or not the plea is fair and regardless of whether or not they're actually guilty of what they're charged of. And I think that for some for some of the players in the system, that's the point. That's not a regrettable side effect. So, I mean, I, I think that there are other jurisdictions that have tried it. I think that uh, the data before they rolled it, rolled it back was that New York's experiment with uh, bail reform was effective. Um, I think it works. It's just that there's a lot of people that don't want it to work because there are a lot of people that want people to be held in jail pre-trial and want people to have that incentive to go ahead and plead. Yeah, Zeke Webster joining us. So the pushback is going to be because you're going to get that guy that's on his fourth, fifth, sixth charge. He leaves and he kills somebody on his way mm-hmm. home. Now, I understand statistically that's the outlier, but I also work in media. So I know yeah. how that works. That's exactly what happened in New York. Every, as soon as they did bail reform, every single person that committed a crime, as soon as they were at that, it hit the wires. What do you do to get around? Because let's be fair. That's a bad optic. It looks bad. It feels bad. People just recoil from it. Like how in the world does that happen? Part of that's probably an accountability problem. Part of it's probably, you know, general sloppiness in the administration of the policy. Part of it's probably the policy itself. How do we push back on that? If you're going to push for some kind of a meaningful bail reform, because it's going just statistically, it's going to happen. Yeah, I mean, it's it's just an you know, 
politics is always a long slog and you know there's no final victories and there's no easy modes or anything like that so it's a matter of persuasion over time and uh you know i i don't i don't dispute that in any kind of system of pre-trial release that you have there's going to be somebody somewhere who is released either because he was released on some kind of non-monetary bond system or because he posted bond and then he got out and then he went and committed some other much more serious crime or whatever it may be. Those cases are always going to exist in at least some numbers somewhere. But you have to point out that that's, that, that's always balanced out by cases like, um, you know, by cases of people who sit in jail waiting trials for months and months and months and are then found not guilty. Or people that are sitting in jail waiting trial and then have something awful happen to them in jail because jails are dangerous and unsafe places to be. Um, I mean, it's, you know, I, I I think the argument can't ever be, oh, well, this this is never, like, we're never going to have any bad effects, whatever, of this policy. It's just that we have to be talking about both the good and the bad. And for every one person that is released who it turns out in retrospect they shouldn't have been released, there's going to be many other people who got out and went home and went back to their families, went back to their jobs and their lives, and then didn't do anything at all like that. And we just have to be talking about this and, you know, be be honest about the pros and the cons and what all this is worth. I know there's a legal term to it, but it sounds exploitive to me. And it sounds like we're going to have a hard time pitching that we're getting justice done if you have an exploitive system like that. Am I wrong? Yeah. I mean, it's sometimes when I'm arguing bond hearings, I just try and boil it down like this. As that I'll say that, you know, if somebody's in jail and he's got a $10,000 secured bond, then what I would say is that, well, what that means is that the opinion of the state of North Carolina is that if this man had $10,000, it would be just fine to let him walk free. But because he doesn't have $10,000, he needs to sit in a cage to wait for his day in court. And in a country that where we at least say to ourselves that, you know, we're all created equal, we all have equal rights, and that your access to uh, to the justice system shouldn't be determined by how rich or poor you are. I just think that the logic of that can't stand, right? I mean, that, that somebody who has the money can get out and somebody who doesn't have the money cannot. There's a fundamental unfairness to it. Uh, it means that that the the rights to a trial, the rights to due process are mean very different things for the rich and the poor. Um, And I just don't think that we should ever be able to uh, accept a system like that. Zeke Webster joining us. My problem with it, and this is more philosophical than legal, so, you know, this is going to be a little, you know, pie in the sky, but it needs to be discussed is my problem with it is it's not just there's no such thing as the system. I understand there's a system, but the system's like the media. It's like, you know, whatever. That's a group of people. I think we'd say the system and let people off the hook instead of having accountability about it. And then the other part about the accountability of it is, though, is nobody wants to do anything other than blame the system and you never get the individual people doing what they could be doing 
this is not people versus the system. This is the government and entrenched people in the government versus people that are not in the government. And that's an unfair fight no matter what you do, unless you have a whole bunch of money and you can fight it. And then they usually leave you alone because now they're the ones without the resources, as we've seen with like the IRS cases. That's the imbalance that above all the rhetoric, above all the other things, that's what really bothers me is we don't see law enforcement and criminal justice. That's the enforcement wing of government and government versus the average person, especially somebody that's poor or in a disparate group or whatever the case may be. That's never going to be a fair fight. If they don't have the law on their side and they don't have some consideration under the law, people don't have a chance. Absolutely right. Absolutely right. I, I don't really have a lot to add other than that I agree. I'll just nod my head over here. I just, it, it's one of those things I find frustrating at the more I study it and the more, you know, I'll be honest, I didn't think about it a lot until somebody I was really close to me and I'm fair to me, you know, had to do a prison sentence that was unjust. And I was all the hoops they had to jump in through. And I was all, you know, the crap they had to deal with. And it's like, this stuff ain't fair. And not everybody has that experience, but they should read about somebody that's had that experience and at least have some empathy. I, I'll, I'll end this with that. How do we have a better conversation about this? Because the, the hardliners are always going to point to the worst case murderers and criminals and say, yes, these people are, you know, subhuman animals, which that's still too far. But you understand what they're saying. How do we change the conversation then to... No, most of the people in the legal system are folks that have made mistakes, have got caught up in it, but we still need to have some fairness in here in adjudicating what price they do owe society as a whole. I mean, I just think it's always important to to talk about the specific stories of the people that encounter the system in that way. That when you're when you know when we're talking about these numbers and about like low level crimes versus high level versus property crimes fundamentally it's you know it's people people that wind up getting put uh, in uh in in jails and prisons every day people that get taken away from their families from their neighborhoods from their communities from their brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers and children and so forth and i think that there are a lot of structural reasons that we tend not to see that story as much as we tend to see the story of you know, serial killers and high profile crimes and so on and so forth. But that's the much more typical story of what the criminal legal system is doing on a daily basis. And I just think that it needs to be more of an emphasis because it is the, it's the bigger part of what the government is actually doing in people's lives on the day to day. And when you're looking at it just as people trying to live their lives and then they have an encounter with the police and they wind up in a cage, it strikes very differently. Yeah. When it happens to you all of a sudden, what's the old joke is like, you know, the victims always want the conservative judge. And the, when you're the defendant, you want the liberal judge, that kind of the old trope. Um, when it's you in the dock or when it's somebody you love, it's it's going to treat you differently. So maybe just assume that to start with and then try to build the system that way. Zeke Webster, you do outstanding work, my friend. I appreciate your insight, especially since, you know, you you do this on the working end, as they call it on the day-to-day. So I always appreciate your insight. Let folks know where they can follow you. We'll try to get you on more often going forward, although you're a very busy man getting ready to get a lot busier. Uh, let folks know how they can follow you until they see you on Hertel again. Uh, probably just hit me up at uh, Don Zico on Twitter. Um, and uh, from time to time, I write things in other places, but I usually put that up on Twitter so you can just start there. Yeah, he's a great writer. We need to lean on him to get back to writing once in a while, at least occasionally, because you do good work, sir. Appreciate your time. Zeke Webster, thank you, sir. It's been a pleasure. Thank you.
Welcome to Herd Tell. Okay, we talk about hard, tough stuff here. When we do it, we get knowledgeable guests. He's one of our favorites. He is a trusted confidant on many things offline. We're going to talk about this real hard one online. We're going to talk about this John Fetterman, Mehmet Oz situation. He is the Independence Man in Congress. He is a published author of We Are Not Broken. Great book on autism. If you haven't got it yet, pause this, go over to Amazon, order it real quick, read that thing. It is an outstanding book. The new version's coming out. Eric Garcia, how are you, my friend? Doing okay. Thank you. How you doing? Uh, I'd rather not talk about it. Let me Maybe. let me just summarize this situation. I hate how this primary has played out. I hate how the people backing these two candidates have conducted themselves. I don't like how the candidates themselves have conducted themselves. I don't yeah. like the situation. I didn't like the debate. I didn't like how it was handled. I really didn't like the reaction to it. I hate everything about this situation. Did I accurately summarize the situation as we see it with the yes, U.S. Senate in a lot So let's put some things out there. I think that already this was going to – the reason why so many people with disabilities had a visceral reaction to the way the commentators did is because they had already framed closed captioning in a really bad way. Plenty of people – literally, I was at Vanderbilt University two weeks ago. That was when I got on. That was uh, – like I was giving a presentation, and it had closed captioning because there are some people with developmental disabilities. So I think that there was already that framing that made things rough. The I think the other the other thing is that this is a community that has historically not been treated that well by the press. So let's get that out of the way. Second, I think that this is that the press did a lot of terrible things. Cover covers the press covers disability pretty terribly, I'd argue. Because if you remember any time that and my friend Rebecca Coakley always says this you know we anybody anytime trump did anything bad they would all they would say oh he can't drink water the right way or he can't or he can't go down the stairs when like plenty of people with disabilities so let's just um let's put that out there let's also talk about the fact that um the way that the moderators talked about disability wasn't necessarily the best talked about closed captioning wasn't necessarily the best and then let's also just talk about how Fetterman was in a lose-lose situation regardless, because there would be people who would always judge him if he went on into the debate, and there would be people who would be judge him if he was not on the if he if he if he skipped it. And let's also talk about the fact that Oz had was not uh, you, you know it, it's really I, I understand, and this is why I say this is that. Debates are inherent. Like I think that in a lot of ways, debates just are a bad medium for people to make their decisions. And most people have already made their decisions already by the time debates happen. But Oz, while he, you know, while many people had concerns after the, the Fetterman debate, while many people in the Democratic Party and even a lot of Republicans, uh, Oz didn't do that great in the debate either. You know, that clip about him on abortion and he come he came off as a little snide and he dodged a lot of questions. So let's put all those things out there. that This is not a good situation at all. No. And I'm going to set some parameters real quick because you and me talk all the time. So we don't need it. But yeah. for the audience, let me, we're not going to do any diagnosing of medical conditions here. That is okay? not because we place. don't know. We don't know how to do that. He had a stroke. We're going to leave it at that. You want to yes. go do WebMD on your own time. You can do that. We're not going to do that. That's not what we're going to do here. Well, everything that Eric just said really didn't have anything to do with Fetterman himself and his performance. That's just background stuff of why people with disabilities. And we're going to touch on that in a minute because Fetterman's getting avatar and that needs to be dealt with, too. So we're going to talk about that in a second. Okay. But we're not going to do diagnosis. 
We're not going to get into that sort of stuff. Yeah, that's not that's not a, it'd be malpractice to do otherwise. No, because it you know, no, and Oz is a well, he's a charlatan, but he is a doctor. So yeah. you know, let me let me lay something on the table right up front where I'm okay. coming from because bias is on the table. We know you've written extensively about disabilities. It's a community you are not only covering but also a part of. Yes, that's your bias. Here's my biases. Um, before anybody wants to know, because I don't talk about this a whole lot, I've had a TBI. Okay. Yes. I, so people are like, well, you don't know what it's like. For, yeah, I kind of do because I remember walking into work after three weeks off with half my face drawn up and full right side paralysis with my arm across my chest with that stupid little squeeze ball for weeks and weeks and weeks until I did yeah. enough rehab to get my arm straightened back out. And I remember the look on the, and I'm the, I'm the supervisor, I'm the boss, right? I remember the look on these 18, 19 year old kids' face with my face all drawn tight and I can't talk right because I'm talking out of the side of my mouth. I'm doing OT, I'm doing PT. Look, yeah, I've been there, okay? So I can at least empathize, sympathize, whatever term you want to be in. It yeah. sucks when you yeah. can't talk correctly and everybody's looking at you like you're a freak and there's nothing you can do about it because something in your brain went wrong because of, in my case, it was previous trauma and then they probably had some kind of a situation that made it worse that they're not sure of, but that's a long story for another day. So those are the biases on the table. I know what it's like to stand there and everybody stare at you. Yes, I've done that. Okay. Yes. Here's the whole thing that I want to start with with him. Let's go in chronological order because there's a lot of mess here. There is. So two day was two three days before the primary. Yeah, um, like two three days before the primary. Back in May, Fetterman basically disappears. Turns out he's in the hospital, and then they announced that he had a stroke. You already touched on it, so I just want to start right there. I understand it's a political campaign. Yes. The way they addressed it, the way they slow rolled it out, the way they tried to control the information combined with the way it was covered by the news media, this was a mess from the very, very go, including because it was two days before a primary. That, and by the way, he was winning by a ton, so it, that there may was, or may not have had a lot to do with it. Yeah, so This was bad from the go. This was bad from the go. So, like, as soon as the debate started, I don't know if you saw, but Connor Lamb started trending because Connor Lamb background was one of his opponents. I don't that is a red herring because Lamb was already not going to win that primary just because he was a congressman and Fetterman was a statewide elected official. So and Fetterman, it's important to remember during the 2020 elections, was on TV all the time, pushing back on Trump's BS on elections. So he just naturally had a lot more um recognition. Uh, uh, name ID. And that, as we know, name ID, you know, as much as people don't like it, name ID means you have an advantage. Then, and by this point, people already had made up their mind. And then, you know, they were not openly transparent about it. Obviously, there was the there was the report later that um, he hadn't gone to the doctor in a long time, uh, you, you know, in a long time before that came out, like, I think like a month after. Let's pause here real quick. He's six foot eight. He has yes. been very public about fighting his weight. Again, we're not going to diagnose. This is just re- yeah. we're going to stick to stuff that's reported and that we see with our own eyes. He's been public about it. he's talking about it. he lost something like 150 pounds prior mm-hmm. to this campaign. He had gotten up to 400 ish, but he's like six foot eight. He's a huge dude. He is so a- weight and health when he's talking about this. This is something he's talked about consistently. So I just want to make sure that gets out there. Let's put that out there. Yes. So this is so this was something that was already going to be that that animated the entire summer because he really wasn't on the trail until like I think August was his first like in person event. Um 
So that was so 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 this was already so this animated how the campaign was already going to be. And at the same time, there was already, I think, a what happened is during the summer, Fetterman just barraged and battered up Oz and ran up his unfavorables. So I think that there was almost an impulse by and I don't want to blame the press, but I think the Pennsylvania political press needed to do something to, to rediscuss and talk about his vulner, his vulnerables and his downsides. And I think Oz needed a, an antidote, so to speak. And I think that that was when you saw his campaign saying if, if John Fetterman had ever eaten a vegetable, you know, he wouldn't have had a stroke. That was when they did the, we'll pay for his medical personnel. That was, that, that was them trying to go for the throat because they had, because Fetterman had just been merciless with him throughout the summer. Uh, yeah. And also Oz, Oz got, unlike Fetterman, Oz got bloodied up throughout the primary between Dave McCormick and, Dick and Kathy Barnett. So let's, let's put that all out there. That's the background and the context for why this became such an intensely personal and vicious. Eric Garcia covers Congress for the independent. Look, things do not happen in a vacuum. And part of the problem with the disability stuff and the debate stuff is everybody just grabbed it in a vacuum and didn't do all the background on it. So that's why we're taking time to walk through all this. Yes. Okay. It's one of our founding principles on this show. Things do not happen in a vacuum. No. So you get, you get the, you get to the debate. (sighs) I'm just going to go there with it because let's be honest. I've got my own health issues. Hell, I'm going to Duke today. (laughs) Okay. So as soon as I'm done with you, I'm getting in the car. Yeah. When you have disabilities or health issues or whatever, your caregivers and your healthcare workers and the people around you are supremely important. Yes. Is there any version of this story with Fetterman where his team, his handlers, his caregivers, whoever, and I'm not touching this wife stuff, y'all do that on your own time. Is there any version of this where his healthcare team and his handlers have not let him down? Um, I think that there are. Um there are some scenarios, but I think that regardless, I, I, I don't think that there was any way. So, so, so this is, I was talking about this with Meredith Shiner, uh, who is, who used to be a congressional reporter, national recent PR. Uh, she's a roll caller. Like I was the real thing that more than anything got me was that they were trying to, they clearly tried to make him have zinc, quote unquote zingers. And this is why I don't like debates because they're all about zingers and sound bites. Him doing the Oz rule thing was kind of, that was clearly them trying to show that, Hey, he can do the kind of dog and pony show that, uh, that debates are rather than just letting him speak from the heart and speak, honestly and openly and candidly. So when that happened, I think that was how his team, more than the disability stuff, more than allowing him to go on stage, things like that. I think that by having him try to, I think that instead of readjusting the expectations 
and showing because like he even in the primary debates and, and it was interesting is that his team actually put out a um a memo i don't know if you saw this but like they put out a memo like literally before they said this isn't his strong suit even in the debates before he had a stroke uh the primary he wasn't that great and it's true they like lamb and kenyatta malcolm kenyatta clobbered him in the debates particularly about the gun the shotgun stuff i think that it was a mistake to make him do normal things that candidates do rather than show that candidates with disabilities campaign differently and i don't want to say because i because i because I, I don't like the idea of voters just having empathy sympathy for can't people because they have a disability because oftentimes that turns into pity but i think that there was a way to show just to have him speak candidly instead of just sticking to his talking points which then made it look like it was forced. So I think that's where I think he was ill-served, was by forcing him to do talking points, talking about the Oz rule, um, or talking about swiping, like an oil company that he doesn't swipe right on, uh, or, or something like that. I think that was the real mistake, was making, it, was making him do the dog and pony show, which, requ- which, which, which just looked really difficult, you know, rather than just letting him speak candidly. Yeah, Eric Garcia, the independent joining us, author. This is, gets to the heart of this whole thing and why this got so messy on social media. And it's why the disability community reacted so strong. And it's why the political press reacted so strong. Almost everyone, and I'm going to broad brush this because I think everybody's got a little bit of hypocrisy here one way or the other, and everybody's yes. got their biases. Everybody wants it both ways with this thing. Yes. They want to say, okay, he's got disabilities. We need to respect the disabilities. But you just said it. They turn around and try to make him do a dog and pony show at the same time. They didn't set him up to go, okay, here, here's his needs, and we need this accommodation, and then sticking to it, and then turning around. By the way, his team after that was horrific. His campaign manager ought to have been fired on the spot for the, the spot he did. I don't know if you saw that or not. Well, yeah, his and starts dropping. Uh, yeah, he stops dropping the F-bomb. Like, what are you doing? But this gets to the core of this whole issue. Because people with disabilities want respect and accommodation. Yes. Where's those lines? And these, this is, these are somewhat rhetorical questions because society will always wrangle with this. Okay, we're going to give you accommodations. We're going to give you respect. When can we start judging you on your actions after we give you accommodations and respect? Yeah. How do we judge your actions in asking for those? How do we you know, measure you? Look, this is a political contest for a high office in the yes. country. How do we measure your performance? And factor that in. These are all those sticky questions we're skipping over because we want to yell terms and buzzwords at each other on social media and we don't want to deal with it. And I understand the frustration of the disability community because they're watching this happen again and again and again. This is just a really loud version of it. Yes. That's really the core of all this and really don't have anything to do with the politics of it. It doesn't have anything to do with So, yeah, let's talk about that. Let's talk about the fact that it doesn't really have a lot to do with Benjamin. It has to do with the fact that people with disabilities have uh, not had the best media coverage and a lot of that is um due to the fact that there really isn't a lot of um there are a lot of people with disabilities by the way amanda morris at the washington post she literally just had a piece that came out this morning i, I suggest everybody read it and everybody follow her at amanda it's on our stack. we're actually going to already link to that so that'll be in the show notes linked yeah yeah so uh so and amanda is a child of deaf parents and a um part of hearing herself so like go read amanda because she actually did the she actually did the hard reporting for this so to your point about judging him on his merits, the, a lot of people talked about the fracking part of the debate and the fact that people were worried because of, because of the disability. I actually had a different take on that, which was 
that wasn't a problem with his stroke. That was a problem of him flip-flopping. And that's where you judge him on the merits, is that he didn't have a good answer about previously disliking fracking and then flipping. That is something to me, at least, where it is totally fair to judge him on the merits. Because, just like any other politician, he didn't have a good defense of it. So let's set aside, because again, what you could see that instead of the instead of his team letting him speak just candidly or try to find his own way around talking about it, but really there isn't any really way to talk about it because of the fact that he did change his position, they tried to make him do talking points rather than accommodate him. I think his team did. So I think that's the real thing is that the fracking part was difficult because it didn't was, was not anything to do with his disability. It was just the fact that he was being hypocritical. So like when we talk about judging him on his merits, that's an example where you could judge him on his merits, him interrupting Oz during his closing Oz's closing remarks. That has nothing to do with his, with his disability. If you interrupt somebody during your closing remarks, you kind of come off as kind of gruff, you know? So I think that's where I kind of, drew the line in my mind is that I was very much is that, and then again, it was him going back to the Oz rule. And I just, and I, and I, I generally just don't like buzz slogans or things like that. So, 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 so keep that, take that into account. There was, instead of just doing this rehearsed pablum, he could have talked about the issues in ways that were adaptable to him. Uh, you know, the big problem I have was that, his team did it. So, like, I'll give you an example. When I was following around Senator Tammy Duckworth and Senator Mark Kirk, because a lot of people were saying, oh, well, Mark Kirk wasn't treated that fairly in the press. He was. Like, I treated, like, like a lot of people, you know, he was out for a while and, you know, wasn't really made as, made as, a, as a big issue, you know. Cover uh, the backstory, uh, though, there. He had a, um, was it a hem- cerebral hemorrhage? I can't remember. But he had to have brain surgery, like, skull off brain surgery. Very yes. serious. And Tammy Duckworth, of course, is a combat wounded vet who, has multiple amputations and is most of the time in the wheelchair, although she also uses prosthetics. So just full coverage of what that yeah, is. Yeah, full background for that. One of the things is that one of the things that I was really adamant about when I was working at Roll Call and I covered that is that I said that candidates with disabilities are going to campaign differently. There is incidentally enough, there's and this is a tangent, but I think this is interesting, is that there's a there's a book called Enabling Acts by Leonard Davis that talks about the 1988 campaign, touches on it a little bit. And what's interesting is some people have speculated, some people in Dole's campaign, in the Bush Dole primary, speculated that when H.W. Bush, George H.W. Bush shoveled snow in New Hampshire, that was seen as like, oh, he could do that when Dole, when Dole couldn't, when Bob Dole couldn't because of his injuries. So I think that what was different is that they didn't say, is it, because Fetterman did have a point where he said, you know, I've campaigned in front of, in front of rallies and like, you know, I, sh- I show that I can do that. I think that what they did, I think that what they should have said and they should have framed it differently is that I'm not going to, you know, I can't do the whole, you know, Pablum Kabuki theater that we, that we often have that campaigns often require, but that doesn't mean I can't do the job. That doesn't mean with closed captioning, I can't be on the Senate floor and cast the votes. They didn't, what they needed to do and what they needed to show was that people with disabilities can do the job. I would have loved to have seen him say, yeah, with closed captioning, I can hear what's going on on the floor. 
with uh, with uh, all these things. Like like I can do the job, and because I've seen people do it, I, I've seen people with devices on you know with that do closed captioning on their phone. They didn't. They didn't address that. Instead, they just said I had a stroke. And they tried to address it right. I get why they did it right at the front, rather than being adamant. Even uh, you know when Feder, even when Oz got really vicious, they didn't go back to that. They didn't. They didn't reassure people because I think that what what needs needs to happen is that people with disabilities should set you, you know. A we need to change how we process communication and and recognize that. Just the way that people, because I've talked to plenty of non-speaking people with disabilities, and obviously they can be very, very intelligent, more intelligent than I am. And then on the other end, I think that what needed to happen was his campaign really didn't say, really didn't go on the out front. By them lowering the bar, that that was the soft bigotry of low, low expectations, rather than saying he's just gonna he's gonna debate differently. Yeah, and this Eric Garcia joining. This is what really upset me about this. And again, I can care less about the politics. I think Mehmet Oz is unfit for office on a couple levels. His Turkish ties, he has no qualifications. He's a charlatan. But I'm not even talking about the politics. All this here, here. This is what upset me. Is okay. I agree with everything you just said, but his campaign has tried to soft pedal this from the go, and I kind of get that. But they want to downplay it on the one hand. Then they turn around on the other hand and go, well, he needs accommodations. But then they turn around and try to make him do the dog and pony show anyway after saying they're not going to do the dog and pony show. That's the exact treat. That's why the disability community gets so upset is like they're watching in real time the mouth and the actions and the words and the handlers and the person with the disability. That's just replay to so many of those folks because they're just watching in real time what happens all the time of we're going to say one thing and then we're going to demand you do the other. Yeah. And we just watch that on television and everybody and because it's a political contest, like, oh, he did horrible in the debate. And I'm sitting there go like, no, his people didn't. Why do you put him in a position to fail like that? And it's not a political thing. It really is. It's It's like, why? Why is anybody doing this? Yeah. This this had like six steps that should have stopped short before anything got to this. Yeah, you couldn't tell. Like, I mean, I think that from what I so so this is just from what I understand is that like I can't, I don't do, you know, I've I've tried to figure out whether he's actually because like I should say, Pennsylvania, and I because I wrote about I I actually went to Western Pennsylvania in my book, you know, to travel for my book. And Western Pennsylvania has the first openly autistic state legislator, um, Jessica Benham, who is uh, just who everybody keep your eye on Jessica Bennett because she's going to go like, like, like just, I'm not saying that just cause I'm autistic, but she, she's going to be going places. Pennsylvania has a history on disability. Uh, the great, um, uh, Dick Thornburg, who was attorney general during the Bush administration, during George, George H. W. Bush's administration was, it was a big advocate on this. Tom Ridge, a former governor of Pennsylvania was also big. And he's, he now works a lot on ending some minimum wage labor. There is a history in Pennsylvania on disability rights. Bob Casey is probably one of the best senators on disability, like knowledgeable on disability rights. They didn't, I think that what they didn't do is that like, what, what a lot of people don't know is that the field, of, and I'm, I'm sorry, I know that this is a tangent, but like this, this is important. 
the Philadelphia Eagles, what a lot of people don't recognize is the Philadelphia Eagles have a sensory friendly room for autistic young people who want to go watch Philadelphia Eagles games. Now I would like it for there to be sensory friendly for adults too, you know, not just for kids. Cause I think that we tend to think of it just as for kids, but the fact that, so there is that, there is like Pennsylvania is one of those states where there is that knowledge. It's not, it's not like a lot of states where there isn't that, where there isn't that, you know, context and familiarity. Instead, what they did is, is it, is that they framed, is it that that memo that they did framed it as, Oh, well, he's not a good debater to begin with. And they put the closed captioning, like, and this is very granular. They put the closed captioning part in their memo, setting expectations way at the bottom when they should have put it even at the middle or the top and said, this is how to cover it. This is what, and you could tell that they didn't necessarily even consult with people with disability, like disability rights activists, or just you know, and there are plenty of them in Pennsylvania for how to contextualize it. So that was that was the thing is that there was very very little. Uh, there, there wasn't the right reframing to begin with, and you could tell the Fetterman campaign didn't think about the disability part, and, and that that I think was frustrating because then I think for a lot of people, disability rights activists, because then they felt like they had to, and I'm sure there are plenty of disability people with disabilities who would have liked to have, in fact, I know people with disabilities who supported Connor Lamb and who supported Kenyatta in Pennsylvania. But then and they had to- And we're going to vote yeah, for Oz too, let's be fair. Yeah, yeah, and vote for Oz too, yeah. Uh, and, and maybe McCormick or, you know, or, or whatever, or even Doug Mastriano. They wound up having to do overtime for something the, the Fetterman campaign should have done. You know, that's, and that that's unfair to the disability community because- the Fetterman campaign didn't do their due diligence in informing people about disability. Yeah, Eric Garcia joining us. This goes to a bigger problem in society, but this is a really good example of it. I and I get it. I get it. When something gets on TV and it goes viral on social media, people people that are in certain groups they they want they want to use that moment to get their messaging out. I don't know that a political campaign with Fetterman with his condition and his stroke and all this. I'm not sure this is a good avatar for the disability community and or the national conversation on disabilities. Yeah. Now, I know that's harsh to say, but I just I'm as somebody that cares about these issues, this is I don't think this is a really good avatar for folks because there's a couple layers that you got to pick through like we're doing and those don't fit on tweets and those don't fit on sound bites and those don't fit on podcasts. Yeah, well, like this is why I say that I that I'm not a fan of debates. Like generally, uh, I mean, there's a reason why losing candidates always demand more debates than, or candidates that are in the red tend to demand debates because they want to get on TV. They want to have that snappy soundbite. I think that I understand why, and I and I, I've tweeted this before. I tweeted this a few weeks ago. And that's what got, and that's what landed me on my tweets on Tucker Carlson. Um, uh, my mom was proud of that, by the way. Uh, but uh, Tucker was against his tweets, just for those of you from Logan yeah, that aren't yeah, keeping yeah. track of the score there. That that was yeah. not a good thing for him, but we've been laughing about it. Yeah, we've been laughing. We've been have, we've had fun with it. I think that I understand. So, like, I understand why the disability community wanted to discuss this. I think it's important, and I also think that. I think that like Politico said, like, uh, you know, most people don't talk about ableism. Well, that's, you, you know, that was malpractice for Politico to say that, you know, in the playbook, you know, because then it's kind of our job that, you know, I think it's our job to talk about ableism, but I define it think, for people. I hate to interrupt you, but so, so before we go any further, is, define it because I saw a whole bunch of people that have no clue what it is. And again, and again I should say that, um, this, that, that I'm speaking in the broadest terms and there are plenty of people who have, you know, subgroups. Ableism is essentially 
discrimination against people with disabilities simply because they are disabled. Um, and because a lot of people with disabilities believe in the social model of disability, they believe that oftentimes it is society that disables people as much, if not more, than the actual disability or the impairment. That's not, a lot of them don't, that's not to say that, that's not to erase the real difficulties that people with disabilities have. A lot of them are the biggest advocates for their own health care uh, because God knows the medical system doesn't really think of them that much. But it's to say that oftentimes society is just, it's just a discriminatory. So let's put that out there. Um, but I think that it's always tough when you put a, when you make a political candidate, especially when there's just one political candidate who's disabled, into the forefront and talk, talking about it, because then it's really hard to parse out what is, what is ableism versus what is uh, just the, the slings and arrows of, of campaigning. So I, I, I understand why people want to defend him, and I understand why uh, people with disabilities think that the general coverage was noxious, and a lot of it was. But I think that this is just especially two weeks out from the campaign, especially in the context of a lot of this debate that was, that's been intensely personal. This campaign is one of the, I'd say it's the ugliest one in the, you know, in the country. Saying something this cycle. Yeah. God, it was going it, to, it's inherently dicey. So I understand. So on one hand, I understand it. On the other hand, I'm like, okay, it's really, really tough because I don't want, cause like, I just, cause like I should say, I want to judge Fetterman. It's as if, if Fetterman or Oz gets in there, I'm going to judge him by his merits. And like, if Fetterman is walking the halls and has a captioning device, when I'm asking him questions, that doesn't bug me. And let, you know, I'll still ask him, how are you going to vote on this thing? You know, now I might take him to a quiet place. Like, you know, where he can listen to the captioning just because I, I have that, you know, understanding but like, I'm still going to give him a heart, but like, I'm still going to, but then like, I'm going to be like, okay, we're in a quiet place. You don't have an excuse, you know? And in the same way, we're, you know, if Oz is, you know, walking the halls, I'm going to ask him questions, you know? So, so, so I think that it's always difficult when you tie, whenever people tie a candidacy to a larger issue, as you said, like in becoming an avatar. So that's the really difficult part, I think. Garcia, let's just go there with that part of it because here, here's the other problem. Yes. For the average person in real life, my rule with disabilities, in fact, we just had a meeting and they had a, a peer group thing with the VA about two weeks ago. We just hashed this out. I was like, you accommodate the disability and then you figure the rest of it out later. In yes. the moment, just accommodate it as best you can. And sometimes I, I understand sometimes folk like, well, people abuse it. Like, okay, but let somebody else figure that part out. Like, yes. you just accommodate the disability as best you can and move on. And keep yes. things moving and keep people respected. And th that's how you yes. deal with it. But that's in person. Yeah. Online, you're in the news media. I'm in the media business. I'm in the opinion business. You report facts as best you can. People that are just tweeting or doing Facebook posts, how do we talk about this better? Because that face-to-face -face interaction goes away. And I try to pretend like Twitter's face-to-face. -face. That's how I try to. Yeah, I try, I try to, you know, even if. But I how do they do it? 
because this is because a lot of people look this is new to a lot of people this is the, new the to things we've learned about the spectrum which which was in your book a lot of that stuff's 2030s i mean this stuff's all new what we know about strokes now you know you this just mentioned it we're going to have candidates if not this cycle really soon with more and more disabilities in congress in the senate in state houses and state we got a bunch in the legislatures already Publishers. we got we got to learn how to talk about this stuff and throwing ableist at somebody over a political opinion is damaging to everybody. We don't want to do that. How do people need to talk about this in a better way? I think a lot of it is. So it's it's funny because, you know, you say a lot of people don't know. This. So like roughly a quarter for to believe CDC members, uh, you, you know, roughly a quarter of Americans have a disability. Something like 26 percent. And that's not counting people with disabilities who don't consider themselves part of the disability community. Um. The way I think we discuss it is by looking, recognizing that a we don't know the full context of everybody's experience. You, you, you know, like I, I, I was, I was thinking, like um, some people got on my friend Sarah Luderman, and I'm, I, I, you and I have been talking about getting her on the show because, like, some people got cross with her when she made some comment about disability and she's like and uh, and then people didn't realize that she's disabled herself and then like she's like i don't have to put everything in my twitter bio you know uh, um you know a lot of times people in my uh people in my mentions you know a lot of parents are like uh my favorite is when they say like well you shouldn't use uh autistic person you should say person with autism that's what parents that's what parents say i'm like i'm autistic you know so so so, so let's let's recognize that we don't know the full context of everything and let's also recognize that just like you know i understand i believe in the idea of cross disability solidarity and you know because a lot of people with disabilities have more than one disability and one often gives way to the other um or gives way to another oftentimes and eventually as if we're all for if we're fortunate enough to get old in our old age, we will become disabled, you know, if we don't die young. Um, but uh, I think that that's so as important as that is, it's also important to recognize that a person affects their disability as much as the disability affects their person, so to speak. And I think it's also important to recognize that each disability is individual and everybody's experience is individual and that, um, there's a lot that even when, you know, so like I'm very, obviously by, I wrote a whole book about it. I'm very open about a lot of my disability. There are also parts of it that are nobody's business, but my own. And I think that's the other part that we had to recognize is that we are only seeing a tiny version of ourselves on social media. It is a curated version. And in politics, that is even, that is juiced up. Because politicians by nature curate parts of themselves that they think are the most palatable to the public. Yeah, Eric Garcia joining us. And just real quick to kind of put a little bit of bow on it. 
it works the other way because I talk yes. to these folks and I, and you, you've done this when you research your book, cause you went in these folks' houses. Like there's people the other way where that's all they talk about on their social media is their disability because they don't talk about it in their real life. And it's not their biggest issue, but they're using that for messaging. This goes both ways because some of that messaging stuff where you're trying to get it out there and you're trying to get awareness, that doesn't mean they want it 24 hours a day in their home life either, because they're still trying to live their normal lives as well. Yeah. I mean, I mean, one of the things that I often say is that like tweeting doesn't make you an expert on disability. Like you actually have to do like, uh, um, I understand like, especially when you get a diagnosis or when you are newly joined part of a community and you, you know, it's kind of the fervor of a convert. Um, but I also feel like there is a way to talk about because to your, to, to your point, a lot of people with disabilities say, yes, this is an inherent part of me and I need you to see this. And I believe that, like, I believe that we need to see people's disability, not just say like, oh, I, I, you know, look past it. I think we need to acknowledge it and recognize this is, this is a part of them. At the same time, I think that like what a lot of people with disabilities say is that, yes, this defines me, but I, I'm also, so like one of the things I say is like, yeah, autism is a very big part of like, you know, it, de- it determines what day, what time of the day I get on the train. Um, because if I get on the train when there's too many people or there's too many buzzing, no, no, just no. Um, but at the same time, I also want to do work. Like well, I was very adamant when I, uh, when I, started writing about autism when I wrote that first piece for national journal. And then when I wrote my book that I was going to go back to work. Uh, that, and that my day job has very little to do with disability. I write about, I write a column for MSNBC about disability. But for the most part, I just write about politics and I'm ha- and, I, and I'll, I'm happy to do that until, you know, somebody tells me I, I suck and I can't do it anymore. You know, uh, I think that's the other, I think that's the other part of it is that people with disabilities also want to be judged on their merits. They don't want, you know, plenty of people, wanted acknowledged, wanted accommodated, and then want to be treated like everybody else. So I, I, I think that, I think that generally, um, again, this is the point that I want to make is that campaigns are inherently difficult. Like it's, it's inherently difficult to make a campaign your avatar for talking about larger things because it's because like, I guarantee you in three days, nobody's going to be talking about that. Like, or once the election's over, nobody's going to be thinking about this one way or the other. Um, and it's, and I worry that just the same way that that kind of parachuting in by a lot of people who don't understand it, uh, a lot of reporters who are just parachuting in to do it as soon as they leave, you know, know, that doesn't do them any service either because a lot of people with disabilities aren't going to have that. So I think that if there's anything that the media can do with this, there's anything the press can do, it's it's to use this opportunity to build and cultivate that community, those relationships and checking them on them like you do any other sources. And so that we, when this happens again in the future, because you said this will happen again. We don't just all bull rush, bull rush it in, but we, there'll be people with, um, with the knowledge and the, and the community sources and the community trust and the, and the building. Like, like, like one of the things that I said is, is that like, don't get me wrong. I love Amanda Morris. I love Sarah Luterman. I love those people, but it's rough that they're the ones who have to go on the front lines, whenever this stuff happens, because a lot of, 
non-disabled reporters just aren't doing the work. That's all I'm saying. Yeah, which is why we bring you on. Because, yeah. you know, I could have called a lot of people. I First first part of the DM, I was like, you and me going to talk about this. You're like, we're yeah, going to talk cool. about this. Yeah. Be, but but I think this is important to disclose. And I don't want to talk out of school, but because we're always talking about this. Like yeah. I text you or DM you and like, hey, what? Are, how do I handle this? What do we discuss about that? Like, that's the background. When you're talking about parachuting in, talking about tough issues is like developing a sports skill or a craft skill or anything else. You've got to do some reps to get good at it. Yeah, and if we're going to talk about these tough issues, we can't just parachute in on it. You need to have some contacts that have disabilities. You need to have those perspective things. And that's something we work really hard. Sometimes we fail. We say we're wrong and we're wrong yeah. on our show. But this isn't something I just woke up this morning and said, I'm going to cover disability. I've been doing it. And you've yeah, been you doing do, it. You and and that's important. You and I talked about it. And it's like, I think that one of the best pieces about this was the uh, New York Times piece that Maggie Astor, who I know she had some mental health issues, but like, I don't know if she's physically disabled or anything. I can't, I can't say, like, I'm not going to be the judge, but like, because, you know, she's built those sources, you know, and she has that trust so that she knew who to call once this, once the debate was over. So if there's anything good that could come out of this, it's reporters building those sources so that, and building just like you do in cultivating any other bead, so that when the stuff comes up again, we're not having this frenzy that really just, you, you know, my, my, my whole feeling when this whole thing happened was, and you know, my feeling about this is like, I'm all, whenever disabilities in the news, I'm like, again, um, and you, I think, I think I've tweeted that I mean, just like seeing how it's being discussed and I'm like, we're doing this again, you know? Yeah. So that, I think that's, if there's anything good that comes out of it. I hope it's that. Yeah. We, we learn, we learn about people when you have a viral story like that, when you have a crisis like that, you, you saw who was scattershot and didn't know what they were talking about real quick. And those are the things you need to mark and pay attention to and then figure out who does know, because you know, whether they did their homework in crisis because they don't have time to go look it up. They just got to react to it. That's yeah. why I'm talking about, you, you don't have to be a reporter for this. Like just as a news media consumer, this is what you should be. You should have a basic working knowledge on certain things so that you don't get sideswiped and you lose your bearing and don't know where to go on a tough story. And then by the way, you notice I didn't do this show yesterday, the day after it happened. I waited a day. Why? Yeah. No, I yeah, exactly. put my own thoughts together on it, even because I had a strong reaction. I'm like, nope, go and wait, let it breathe. Then we'll talk about it. I, yeah. That was the thing that I, cause like I knew I had, I, I had a strong reaction to it. And what I did is I kind of cooled down. And then what I did is I, is I listened to people who I know are more knowledgeable about me. A lot of people think that a lot of people, cause like my, my, my dad, uh, God bless my dad. Uh, he, uh, you know, he says like, well, you're kind of an expert about this stuff. Like he was talking about this when I was back home, uh, not about this, but about something else, you know, this is really stuff. And I was like, and it was funny to me because it was just like, God, I am not an, yeah, I wrote a book about it, but like, I still try to read as much as I can and consume as much as I can about it. And that was why I was real glad that you gave me a day and I tried to read as much as I could and listen to as many people as I could. Um, and I, th I think to, I think to your point, like this was, there were, there, there was missed opportunity after missed opportunity. I want there to, and if there's anything good, but if there's, you know, again, this is my, my, my Christian school upbringing, what man intended for evil, God intended for good, you know, if there's anything good that comes of it, I hope that it's that more reporters build sources or see 
people with disability on the news media talking about this. And then, no, hey, I know I should probably call Maria Town or I should call Rebecca Coakley. I should call Julia Bascom or I should call, uh, you know, any of these other people, you know, any of these other folks or Andrew Pullrang or email Alice Wong or something, you know, so. Folks, if you've listened to the Herd Tell program, you've heard our friend Gabriella Hoffman, but you need to make sure you're checking out her podcast, District of Conservation. It's a podcast exploring the nuances of true conservation efforts from D.C. and beyond. From topic discussions to exclusive interviews with conservation and energy newsmakers, Gabriella keeps listeners appraised of the latest news stories while elevating important voices. Listen to the District of Conservation on Apple Podcasts or wherever podcasts are played. Garcia, that's why we talk about this tough stuff with you, man. I appreciate your insight. Another tough topic. One of these days, we'll just talk about ice cream or something. We just did pie with RJ the other day. I'll get you on yeah. for something easy for 10 minutes. Uh, tell people where they can find the book. You are you do a column for MSNBC, your day job. You write all kinds of stuff for the Independent Congressional Reporter. You're going to be busy the next couple of weeks, and especially God in spring. Me. Enjoy your Christmas, because that might be the last time you breathe until probably April or May. No, no, I'm, I'm looking forward to it because, like, my mom, I talked about this, my mom, you know, like, I say that, like, my mom worked in Macy's, you know, for a long time. And, uh, and, and so, like, I knew from, like, middle of November to, like, the beginning of January, I wouldn't see my mom that much, like, a lot, you know, just because she, she you know, she was making everybody else's season merry and bright while she was busy. And, like, you know, but now that she's out of the retail business, I get to spend Christmas with her, so I'm looking forward to that. But yeah, uh, you can find me uh, on Twitter at Eric M. Garcia. Um, I hope that I think that what I want to say with the disability community is, um, you know, I spent a lot of time covering it. If people listen to this, I hope that they correct me where I'm wrong. And I hope that I did a good job summarizing what I've heard because I was, I've just been trying to hear what people have told me. And I hope that I did. A, I hope I did a good enough job. So you know, that's, that's what I was trying to do. So. You rarely regret gaining more knowledge and using a little empathy and yeah. especially on tough issues like this. So, so I do Eric Garcia, you're the best. We will link to all this stuff. We're going to link to some of the pieces we discussed too. Uh, Suderman did a uh, Twitter thread that I sent out. She, and again, she wasn't talking politics at all, just straight disability stuff that got some people worked up. We're going to link to stuff like that. Uh, do your homework on this thing. Cause you need to read yeah. a lot of different viewpoints on this stuff. Yeah. She, yeah. Sarah, like, I, I really hope that she, she said that it's tentative, but I really wanted to get you on the show. So. Yeah. I hope so. Eric Garcia, you're the best, my friend. Thank you for the time, Thank sir. Now let me see you go off like a bomb. That'll do it for Herd Tell. As always, love to hear from you. HerdTellShow at gmail.com. Send us an email, HerdTellShow on the Twitter. You can DM us and follow us there. Also, my Twitter handle, Four for the Fire, and those of our guests is always in the lower third graphics. If you're watching on the YouTube, if you're listening on the podcast, there'll be links 
for you to follow both the writing of the folks we have on and us and our social media. This only works because you listen and we so greatly appreciate you. So wherever you are across the street or around the world, we hope you and yours are well. We hope you are well fed. We can't wait to see you again for more Hurtel. Uh, ah, welcome back to Hurtel. Okay, been a minute since he got on here, but he jumped all on me on Twitter over pie. So I was like, well, that's good time as any bringing back uh, RJ Lehman, good friend of ours, the International Center for Law and Economics. He does all kinds of other things, but we're going to argue over pie, my friend. I'll yep. take apple. You can have the field. The floor is yours, sir. Well, I, in fact, I am wearing a lime shirt. I know people listening on audio can't see this. This is a very Florida thing you're yeah, doing. Yeah, yeah. So, so to celebrate the key lime pie, which is, you know, I, I have one that I do like better, but I, I go key lime pie. If you key lime is your favorite pie, I can't argue with that. It's it's definitely uh, uh, top five in, in any list. Um, it's a... Uh, you know, it's got it's got the perfect balance. You got a good graham cracker crust. I'm not a short crust guy. Graham cracker co- crust contrast with the brightness of the key lime uh, and the condensed milk, and then you know a little a little. You can go either way. You can go meringue or whipped cream on top, um, and it just comes together in in the perfect combination. I, mean, I think pie, pie is a good platform. You can use pie and a good crust to make so many different kinds of things. Uh, cake, you know, it's cake is there's a, a frosting delivery mechanism, and that, that's that's its best purpose. Otherwise, cake is is kind of bland, kind of dry. Pie can be everything. Yeah, delivery mechanism is the good term for it. Here's my <laughs> I'm not a huge sweet guy anyway. My daughter's yeah. a baker, she can bake anything. I'm not a big sweets guy, I'm really not. Mm-hmm. Nobody's ever said as American as key lime pie. <laughs> that's true. That's true, but that's because they, they don't understand that Florida is the most American state. Oh, here we go with it. I, I sat through that debate last night, but let's talk about that some other time. Let's stick to pie here. Look, apple pie is just per let, let me let me let me throw you some background here. We actually had apple trees where I grew up 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 yonder. We had several of them. Uh my great grandfather put those in grafted them like in fact the one in front of the house is still there it actually has three different kinds of apples on it because he grifted them but because it's got three different apples none of the three are particularly good to be honest but the deer like them (laughs) but those transparents right in front of the house and we've lost a few of the trees to storms and stuff over the years those transparents man you don't want to eat them off the tree because they got a little tart to them but by the time you make apple pie out of them bad boys and mamma made some apple butter out of them bad boys Mm -hmm. you're talking if now the eating sweet apples, you got to get a little bit of a tart apple. So when you sweeten it up, it's got that balance. Sure. And then whether you do regular pie or you do Dutch where you do the crumble, I can I can handle either. You want to get real funny and do the strip things with the crisscross. Look, we're poor folks. Yeah. Just put some crust on there and poke it right. on. Let's go. Yeah. Get a little ice cream on there. Yeah. It's just perfect. It's tart. <laughs> it's sweet. You get a little ice cream on there. I'm not a biggest sweet guy, but there's a reason we say as American as apple pie because it's just perfect. It's a good balance of elements as well. I'm not going to denigrate apple pie. Uh, I, you serve me a good apple pie on Thanksgiving, I'll be a very happy man. Um, I just think there's a lot of other pies. But then again, you know, I I go towards very sweet. You know, my my very favorite pie is the Amish uh, Pennsylvania Dutch shoe fly pie, which is basically just a slab, two slabs of sugar, a slab of molasses, slab of brown sugar on top. Yeah, um, the molasses for people that don't know. Yeah. Molasses is very distinctive. Of course, something, you know, Appalachian. So this is something yeah. very, you know, indigenous to my culture. Mm-hmm. Um, 
molasses is this whole different thing. And when you per- correctly use molasses in a thing, you can tell it's sweet without being over. But this is some, we, we both traveled Europe. Like yeah. you go into a pastry shop in like Germany or France or somewhere, even something that's glazed with sugar. Yeah. It's not that heavy, artificially sweet like we get here in America. It's sure. not that just punch you in the face sweet. Yeah. And molasses does that better than sugar does. does. So we had an Amish community when I was working in Ohio. Uh, we actually delivered to them and they would always send back the Amish donuts. I'm talking yeah. just a dough ball the size of your fist covered in that. It yeah. looks really super sweet, but it's not. Yeah. And that stuff is so, so good. Good call. And, it, and to do it right, to do it authentic, in fact, they don't use. So molasses is a kind of what the Brits call treacle. Um, you know, we don't use that word very much here, but technically molasses is dark treacle. They're in Pennsylvania in you can't get it everywhere. They're golden syrup, which is light treacle. They call it turkey syrup. Turkey syrup is, is the most common brand name. Um that is what you're supposed to put in a in a shoe fly pie. Um, you can get it on the internet if you're if you're gonna try to make it at home. If not, mola- regular dark molasses works well too. I don't I don't I don't I don't have any truck with using dark molasses. But if you want, I want to you know give the authentic experience. You're supposed to use you're supposed to use turkey syrup. Now I have to do a shout out here because she does listen to the program. I know this because there's a phone call situation to make sure it's working usually to get her on the Facebook feed to watch the program. Yeah. But aunt, no, no, I love you. Uh, <laughs> my aunt Nora always makes the kid a big chocolate pie. Now when mm-hmm. I say chocolate pie, I need to paint the picture here. This is a pie that is sticking up with all the chocolate filling. Mm-hmm. And then it has a good three or four inches of burnt off meringue on top nice. of it. Nice. So this whole thing is like a pyramid of awesomeness. Again, yep. I'm not a super sweets fan. She usually makes them for my kids when we're in for things, but I have reconsidered my position. I will also consider no, the chocolate pie from Aunt right. Nono of Mount Nebo, West Virginia. But what, so what about your standard fruit pies, your cherry pie, blueberry pie, peach pie? You're not, you're not a fan. I'll tell you this. I got blackberries are awesome. Unless mm-hmm. you grew up rurally and actually have had, ever gone blackberry picking. Mm-hmm which is, I think, Dante's eighth or ninth circle of hell. Um, (laughs) When you're a little kid growing up in West Virginia and you got to go blackberry picking, understand these things are not normally on the side of the road. They're out in some pasture on some hillside surrounded by thorns, some kind of wild creature that wants to kill you, usually a couple patches of poison ivy. Mm -hmm. Uh, Odysseus did not have to go through half as much as us kids growing up had to to get blackberries. That kind of burned me on black. I'm... Look, uh, number one, full disclosure here, I've got major GI issues, so I'm not supposed to have citrus anyway, so i got to be careful with berries anyway, so a little bit of bias here. I've never been a big berry guy. I don't, I know, I talked tart and sweet. I understand the flavor profile. Y'all know how much I love to cook and food. I Mm -hmm. get it. Dessert-wise, I've just never been that much of a berry person, especially the really sharp stuff. Obviously, lemons and stuff, you use the flavor. I've yeah. just never been a berry guy. I just yeah. never have been. It's just personal preference thing. But I get it. I understand, you know, berries and cream. You're already halfway to a pie right there. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, people go to brunches. You know, a mimosa is basically a liquid berry pie. Let's just be fair with alcohol in it. They, I get it. It mm-hmm. just ain't me. If you want a balance, you know, good balance of sweet and tart, um, I think uh, a really excellent pie is a strawberry rhubarb. Uh, strawberry pie on its own, like a strawberry cream pie. Even for me, that's a little too sweet, a little too cloying. Um, rhubarb on its own. Some people really love it. Um, it's tart. It's it's a little bit astringent, a little bit bitter. 
but you combine the two in a strawberry rhubarb and that is a you got all the all the flavors all the balance right right in one spot yeah i i get the berry because look the the key to food is balance especially mm -hmm. when you're putting like a something like a pie Mm -hmm. That's one of the reasons I don't like cake. You actually opened up with this. I'm I'm not a big icing guy. So if all I'm getting is icing when I eat your cake, then you've already lost me. <laughs> because yeah. and I get it, people like icing, but you know, I it it should be the it should be the end note crescendo, not the first note to punch. You know, it's not a James Brown thing. Hit it on the one. If I'm getting icing first and that's it, you you've right. already lost me. Yeah. Pie, cake, confections, eat, you know, bigger. You got to balance those things out. And this is why it comes back to apple pie for me as being my favorite, because that thing just balances so well. Mm -hmm. You do it right. You do the crust. The crust is so important, by the way. If, if you got to get that la that flared lakey. It's like making biscuits. Got to get them layers in there. Got to get that cold butter in there. Mm -hmm. There's an art to it. I don't know how to do it. I'm, I'm a pretty good cook. I can't bake to save my freaking life. So right. people that can make good pies, my daughter can make, she made me a four layer cake for my birthday. Just off, so I'm going to make you a four layer cake today for my birthday. Oh, okay. Thanks. Yeah. You know, she can do it. I can't, you know, right. making science. I'm more of an artist. I want to free form it. Yeah. I have infinite respect for people that can make a good pie. I'm being a little facetious saying Apple's the only one because I like to throw grenades on Twitter every now and then. But mm -hmm. I really do believe I look, I'll take Apple Pie folks in that. You brought up one on your list that you put on Twitter. We'll link to his yeah. tweet, by the way. Sure. I do find rhubarb very intriguing because it really is more savory than sweet when it's handled yeah. correctly. Yeah. But people think of it as a dessert, like a rhubarb pie, but it, it really is a savory. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's a uh, you know, it's a it's a bitter root. Uh it, it's got and it's got when when it's cooked, it's got you know some some tang to it, some some tartness. Um, it's it can be a good balancing agent. A good pecan pie where you add your vanilla and your salt um, along with it, you know the saltiness of the nuts and then the obviously the the butter and the corn syrup. Um, that is also I think a, a pretty well balanced pie, but definitely a sweet pie. I'm not I don't have a problem with just getting punched in the face with with sugar. Chess pie is another one similar to to uh, shoe fly pie that's basically just a slab of sugar. Yeah, there's all kinds of, you know, icebox pies where you just cold it yeah. and let it sit in the fridge. Uh, but pies are good. All right, this is fun. It's always good to talk a little food, buddy. We'll get you back when we'll actually talk some, you know, internet regulation or something sure. important that we need to. But uh, RJ Lehman, let folks know where they can follow you and keep up with you. You're a great Twitter follower because you're like me. Right. You're all over the place. You're talking pies and food and politics. Let folks know where they can follow you, where they can keep up with you and what's going on at the uh, International Law and Economics Center, my friend. Sure. we're. Uh, I'm at, at Ray Lehman, R-A-Y-L-E-H-M-A-N-N. -E uh, on Twitter and uh, my employers at law econ center. You can also get us at laweconcenter.org on the internet. Uh, we're, we're real busy these days with stuff like uh, credit card regulation and uh, platform regulation and antitrust, which is always a exciting topic in the world of big tech. Yeah. I was reading through uh, Kevin McCarty's list of things he wants to do. I got a feeling you and me going to be talking a lot in January and February, <laughs> awesome. my friend. Yeah, uh, always good talking to you. Good to see you weathered the hurricane, my friend. We'll have you back soon. RJ Lehman. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Yep. Yes, sir.
Hi. Oh, welcome back to Hurt Tell. Amanda Griffith's with us. We're going to do something fun with her, though. We usually hit her up for really serious, heavy topics because she's one of these real smart people with letters after her names. But this one's going to be fun because you're well-versed in the classics. Uh, I grew up in a household with a you know Greekophile dad, so I had to learn my classics growing up. This got posed on Twitter, and I think you're the perfect person to ask about this because we were debating it a little bit. Um, I will credit it where credit is due. Um, it, Moses, um, Isaiah 545 at the, the Twitter, asked this question, does America have a national epic? And they listed a few things here. Of course, ancient Greek, you have the Iliad and the Odyssey. Uh, ancient Rome had the Aeneid, and I'm probably saying that wrong. India has something that I'm not even going to take a shot at uh, pronouncing. Germany, of course, had Foss. I would also throw the ring cycle in there, but that's just me being in Germany. I think the ring cycle has a lot more uh, cultural rates. Spain, they did Don Quixote. Um, England, maybe Tolkien, Beowulf, even though Beowulf was said in Norwegian, it was an English poem. Uh, Ireland, uh, Scotland, Osanian, uh, Scandinavian had Volsunga. There's some, of course, all the Viking stuff for all of the different Norwegian Nordic countries. Yeah. I love this question for this reason. Does America have a national epic? Now, I have a couple goofy ones I'm going to throw at you first, but just off the top of your head, you're a classicist. You study this stuff. Her Twitter handle is Ajax because, you know, Ajax, that Ajax, not the cleaning Ajax. I love him. No. That's a classic, but that's an epic. You know, Ajax is a part of the epic. Does America have an epic? So this would actually be a wonderful question to ask my sister, who is legitimately a classicist. She's a classics professor now. But we um, don't have her. We have you. We don't, and I'm definitely not her. But uh, what I would say is that technically, no, because America was founded after the epic tradition really had its heyday. You had... I, I really, it really sort of died out mostly in the medieval era. And even, even that is very, very late. I'm talking about, you know, then that's when you would have things really being written down and transcribed. So America doesn't have a, a national epic in that technical sense. No. Also because it's a, it's, it's a, um, America, despite what some people might argue, doesn't have a, uh, really doesn't have blood ties to the soil the way that a lot of a lot of areas that do have epics will, will typically have so it's not as though there's this people that comes from this land that are given and that are that are given this land to then rule it um, as you would see typically an epic sort of explains how that all goes down um, so it, it's it's not really the proper country this is this is again the stilted academic answer it's not the proper country to have an ep an epic in that sense all right i agree with everything you just said but i'm going to pitch you one anyway and i'm okay. going to bend i'm going to bend the definition a little bit because we're american we just remix what everybody else does anyway and make it better because right. that's what we do let me pitch it to you this way okay mm -hmm. everything you said was true this was after the epic period but if you go to the 1800s, especially the mid to late 1800s, that's when a lot of our modern take, and I know I'm, I'm stretching modern, but that's when a lot of the modern kind of classical revivalist stuff was written. Sure. Right? Yeah. Um, was in the 1800s. All, you know, every 150, 200 years, all of a sudden, everybody pays attention to the Greeks and the Romans again. It's like a cycle throughout history. There was a cycle in the 1800s and 18, late 1800s where all these philosophers started digging through the Greek stuff again and the Roman stuff again. 
So let me pitch you this one because it's, it doesn't fit perfect. But we kind of had a big deal happen in the mid-1800s, right? We had our Civil War. And that is the one point in American history where all those divergent balls hit. Of course, it was flammatory. We had, you know, hundreds of thousands of deaths. We had just ripped the country apart. But from that point until now, I don't know of anything else that has shaped our nation more, that has had more writing about it, that has more historical significance, that has more cultural significance. I think if you had to pick an epic and it fits that time period where people started talking about epics and classics again, and it happened in real time at that period, I think that might be the closest thing we have in the American national consciousness to an epic is the American Civil War. I think in, in terms of the, the national consciousness, you, you're correct. As you're talking about that era, by the way, and then this, this, is, this is not directly uh, that era per se, but I was thinking you certainly do have these folk tales, right, that I think might fit the mold in some, in some regard as an epic. Daniel Boone, uh, Tom Sawyer, Huckleberry Finn, if you wanted to say what are the American epics, these I might call American epics. See, as you're talking, I'm having more of an opportunity to think this through, uh, because not only are they, uh, you know, are, are they are they works, uh, you know, that, that that encapsulate the spirit of a particular era. They sort of encapsulate the spirit the spirit of a country, right? So again, Tom Sawyer, Huck Finn. All right, this is this is classic when you think all America and you think pull yourself up by your bootstraps, that kind of thing, spirit of adventure, uh, rugged individualism, all of that, you get that with, with these characters. Now, when you talk about the Civil War, it's interesting because that is, you're right, that's an oral tradition. Yes, people have written things down about the Civil War. You have Civil War diaries. Um, I think what would need to happen to consider the Civil War an epic in and of itself would be a little bit more codification of a narrative. Because when you go through, um, there's a lot of dispute about what happened during the Civil War. And I'm not even talking about, you know, what caused it, what were the factors. There's just so much at play. So when you say the Iliad, uh, the Odyssey, these are epics. Well, the Iliad that's taken from the Trojan War, but you don't say that the Trojan War itself is an epic. Um, so I would say that the Civil War provides fodder for epics. And I'm not disagreeing with you per se. I'm just saying to, like, to refine the answer a little bit, various accounts of the Civil War perhaps might be epochal, might, might, be, might be more in that vein. Um, but so I'll, t I'll, I'll see your answer and then I'll also kind of modify mine a little bit and say something like Tom Sawyer and Huck Finn would be good American epics. I haven't seen this question. I imagine someone might have answered that. But they, they, they did. And okay. I, I take your point that, yeah, if you want to make it fit, making that like the Trojan War, which is what most of the, you know, Iliad and Odyssey was revolved around, was either going to and coming back from the Trojan War. I think that works, too. The, the criticism, of course, is going to be that the problem with a Huck Finn and things like that as a national narrative is it leaves out a lot of our national narrative. It leaves out the mess that the Civil War is. It leaves out right. the massive influx of immigration after the westward expansion that changed our country. Right. It, it, it's, it's, let's be fair, the criticism is true. You know, that's kind of a sanitized, whitewashing version of American history, which, of course, epics are like that because they're told well, right. to be good stories. Yeah. So that's why I kind of went to the Civil War first because... That's the only one where 
everybody knows a little, at least a little piece of it, but it's still messy enough that you can get real history without all the, the mythification. Not that there's not a lot of mythification around the civil war, but I take your point. I think it works better as the Trojan war comparison than an overall epic, but that was just the first one I thought of. Let me give you a couple that are a little sillier, but I think they're a little fun. Okay. Um, these of course don't fit, but as a genre style, somebody brought this up. I thought this was actually interesting because this is kind of an ethos thing. Westerns, which are kind of uniquely American, at least in cinema, especially Mm -hmm. they have some epic traits. When you start thinking about things like how the Western, it's kind of uniquely American. It's, it's that spirit of adventure kind of stuff. It's not a perfect square peg in that round hole, but I could see that. Yeah, no, I, I think, I think Westerns, and they're, 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 a lot of them are structured kind of as epics they're supposed to be. A lot of the old Westerns, I think, are probably, there are a couple, aren't they, that are supposed to be modeled after the, the Odyssey or what have you. Um, epics also, to a point, if you look at the traditional epic style, typically lends legitimacy to some type of rulership or to uh, a people's right to rule. Um, so if we think about, you know, d- does, a, does a Western or do any of these things we've mentioned back and forth, uh, do those lend legitimacy, maybe not to institutions of government, but to a particular way of being that we consider all American? I think Westerns certainly do that. Yeah, absolutely. Westerns are great. You know, Westerns themselves, like, like, you know, like I was just saying, are sort of modeled after a lot of a lot of epics. So I can dig. I can dig that. Two others real quick that made this okay. list. Um, both of these, I actually, I like them individually. I don't know if they raise to the level of epic. Um, this one, <laughs> this, this is one of my favorite books that definitely need an editor because you could have cut out over a third of this book and made it a lot tighter because it gets into nomenclature. But as far as one-liners go, as far as epics go, as far as forming American literature going forward, Moby Dick. It's not It's oh. not arguable that that's... I. If you had to go with a piece of literature, that one's going to be hard to beat in the American canon. Although I would say maybe Tom Sawyer is probably more of an epic than, than Moby... Uh, well, not more of an American epic than Moby Dick. Uh, but yes, I think that's... It that's is written the, in the British... Ter- for the uninitiated... It's an American story, but it was very much a British seafaring narrative. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I take your point. Yeah, no, I think I think I, but I think that Moby Dick is certainly again, that's kind of meant to be an epic. If you look if you or it, it, it has an apocryphal bent to it. Right. It's got a kind of hero's journey type of return, you know, coming and going. Um, yeah, that that would that would certainly fit. This one's a little more obscure, although people will know the one part of it when I say it, but probably a lot of folks don't realize it's actually part of a of a larger series. Uh, it's I, I'm going to preface this by being honest. I've actually read the original book. It's unreadable. It is utterly unreadable. You cannot read it without a modern translation of this, even though it's written in America in English because it's unreadable. The Last of the Mohicans, it's part of the Leatherstocking Tales. But if you're going to go to foundational myth-making, 
for a people and a culture and a country, that's probably about as close as it gets as foundational myth-making is the leather stocking tales. And of course, the most famous part of that is the last of the Mohicans narrative. Yeah. Yeah. That was, I, th- I think, I think that one's a pretty good one. That's a very good one. That's a, that's a very good one. Um, again, all of these fit, right? They, they, or they, they all fit in different ways that I think are really cool. And again, like American syncretism. So that, so no, there isn't one grounded, solid American epic, but there are a whole bunch that if you compile them together, as we've been doing, you get these core themes that come up again and again. And I think do not only shine a light on certain aspects of the American spirit, you'd call it, but also legitimate it and say, this is a really cool thing and applaud it and praise it and also critique it in interesting ways, you know, shine a light on maybe some of the more difficult or challenging aspects of the American spirit and the American story as well. So I think these all work when you put them together, Uh, just like, again, this, this unique blend of ness that becomes american ness that is so wonderful yeah and on that yeah and on that one i i think this one at first i was kind of like and then the more i thought about the more i thought this actually really really fits because it goes into the one i started with which was the civil war this was a precursor to the civil war so if that's going to be your troy narrative um Mm -hmm. you know um if you're going to have an agamemnon you're going to have to have something that predates that Uncle Tom's Cabin, Harriet Beecher Stowe. Um, It was actually called Life Among the Lowly was what it was actually called originally. Two volumes. This really cranked up the social consciousness on a lot of levels. The more I thought about, the more I looked at it. Yeah, that one fits. (laughs) That absolutely fits. I think that's a great one to add to the the American canon uh, for a number of reasons. And I mean, to the American epic canon in particular that we've been making up just now, uh, it, that absolutely is, uh, is a powerful one. And I'd, I'd include that for sure. All right. Now my silly one. Um, but before I get to that, do you have one off the top of your head that you can think of that you would think either silly or serious uh, epic for America before I give you my goofy one? Again, I'm going to, I'm going to say Tom Sawyer, Huck Finn. Um, and I don't know if there's a silly one that I have. Uh, no, I want to hear yours. Let's go for it. All right. Odysseus was a piker compared to any American trying to find a McDonald's ice cream machine that works during peak hours. Odysseus is a piker no matter what, man, but that's perfect. That's perfect. That's like someone. That is, who, that is our Iliad, is trying to find during peak hours an ice cream machine that is not in its maintenance cycle. I thought they were always all like in their maintenance cycles. I, I heard there's a reason for that, and it has to well, do they with shut them all down of, like, for regulatory failure. It's a conspiracy, man. No, I heard no, like I, I heard that there there's some weird reason that 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 McDonald's ice cream machines are always in their maintenance phase, and it has to do with the fact that and it's it's sort of like it's actually not the government directly. It has to do with it, but it's a lesson about how centralization always fails. Um, someone should look this up uh, because and, and and read about it and think about how this is a metaphor because I can't remember off the top of my head. But yes, that would be an epic, and someone should write it, and someone should write the write the movie for it as well. And if anyone wants to write a part for me, that'd be great. That 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 might be one of my uh, 
if I go down for surgery for a while, that might be one of my hospital things. I might have to write up the epic of the ice cream machine. So we may have to do that. All right. Amanda Griffiths, this is a little more fun topic, but you know, epics are important. You know, natural national ethos is important. I thought this was a fun topic. I knew you'd be the perfect person to ask about it because you are well-versed in the classics. So I will end with this since he is your favorite. Who would the American Ajax be? Ooh, I can't say me. Um, I, you know, no, it can't be you. No, I was joking. I was joking anyway. No, who is, who is the American Ajax? Here's the thing. Here's, I think part of why I like Ajax so much is because Ajax has so many American um, qualities that I would identify as being very much American and individualistic. Um, there is pride, certainly. There is this uh, sense of self-determinedness and sense of individualism. Salvation's light is in the work of our hands. Um, there's, you know, the sense of your spirit leaps at a challenge. Um, your spirit leaps uh, at the opportunity to prove yourself. Who's the American Ajax? Uh I almost said someone like Elon Musk. He's not even American. Um, I think, and Elon Musk's more more of an Odysseus type of fellow anyway. Got you um, yeah. I'll take a stab at it. Okay, okay. If he gets killed at San Juan Hill, Teddy Roosevelt. Yeah, I was I was actually, that Teddy Roosevelt occurred to me. Um, but, he, but he's got to die at San Juan Hill, you know, at the gates of Troy. He can't he can't do the rest yeah. of it because then it doesn't fit anymore. Yeah. But if you have him just where he self-made himself, a vigorous life, all that, uh, the bully stuff, that would work. Because he was, fits all that. Not physically, obviously. He wasn't the imposing no. figure with the war hammer. But mentally, rhetorically, attitude-wise, he jumps off the page at me. Um, there'd probably be some other ones more physical, but that that's the first one I thought of. You're not going to believe me, but he was also the first one that I thought of. I then I tried to go for someone more contemporary, but yes, I think he's a, he's a great one. He's a great one to sort of say that's the American Ajax. Yeah. This has been fun. I'm glad we did this. Thanks for this, making the time for me. We'll do more. We're going to have to do more classical stuff. Yeah. Fun, but, uh, Thanks Amanda for bringing Yeah, definitely. Right. Amanda Griffith, let folks know where they can find you until we get you back on Hertel again, which will be often and frequently because we yes. love having Yes, and I love being here. I, people can find me on Twitter at Ajax the Griff. That's how Andrew knew. A-J-A-X-T-H-E-G-R-I-F-F. And uh, you can also follow me at my contributor page at Young Voices. That's young-voices.com. Scroll down they'll say, or click on contributors. You'll see me, all the work that I've done uh, with Young Voices published through them, as well as media hits. Always love to engage with folks. So on Twitter and also young-voices.com, my contributor page is there. We'll have to get you some kind of Warhammer animation, like when our budget gets high enough. That'll be fun. Please do. Um, I don't know what your personal gates of Troy will be, but please avoid them because we want you to hang around for a while longer. Yeah. Life is Uh, just my gates of Troy. I don't know. Stay away from Hector. All right. Uh, Amanda Griffiths, always a pleasure, man. Thank you for the time. Thank you so much, Andrew. Yes, ma'am. Now let me see you go off like a bomb.
Uh, welcome back to Herd Tell. Okay, this is going to be fun because I love when you can tie history and policy together into a current event and a current problem. We're going to do that right now. Uh, Neetu Arnold is joining us, another of our great Young Voices contributors. How are you, ma'am? Thank you so much for the time today. Yes, thank you for having me. I'm excited about talking about this subject. I am, too. She's a senior research associate at the National Association of Scholars. That needs an acronym. I'm just saying. <laughs> um, and she's the author of Priced Out, What College Costs in America. But we're going to talk a little policy here. Uh, you're in the Wall Street Journal. Great get. Congratulations. Still haven't heard back from them yet. <laughs> I'm available. Uh, the title alone gets my attention on this. A Cold War program gets hijacked. We're going to talk about the National Resource Centers. Let's start big picture before we zoom in on the National Resource Centers, though. This is not a new phenomenon where we have Cold War programs, Cold War policies, frankly, Cold War thinking that has zombified and still lurches forward today, along with some government funding and the bureaucracy that comes with it, is it? No, not at all. And I think this is a perfect example of a program that was conceived under an emergency that has outlived its purpose. And again, with the National Resource Centers, they were founded uh, as a Cold War emergency. Uh, this was in the height uh, of the Cold War. Uh, Sputnik was launched by Russia or the Soviet Union, actually. And uh, at the time, Americans did not have a sufficient language, knowledge or science or mathematics at the time. And so there was a lot of interest from the government to educate Americans in foreign languages, in math, in science. And so that's how this program came to be. And so it was really about develop, uh, specifically for the National Resource Centers, it was about developing language knowledge and expertise on different areas of the world. So, so far, what I've said here doesn't sound very problematic. It doesn't sound controversial, but over the years, uh, there's been a mission drift for these centers. And what I documented in the Wall Street Journal piece was that a lot of these centers are now focusing on issues that are either unrelated to national security or uh, the topics are not that important and, in fact, sometimes malicious. Yeah, Netu Arnold joining us. Uh, you know, it hits me, staying big picture for just a second before we get into specifics of the NRC, Everything you just said, you could swap out the Soviet Union and say China, because we've been discussing over and over again. It's like, well, China is so far ahead of us on the intellectual and academic front. They're putting out and you can pick whichever number you believe. So many more, you know, scientists and so many more of the higher ed people than we are. So on the surface, this is not a problem that has gone away. But that's not what these things are actually doing. And it sounds good. Hey, we need to have more knowledge of the rest of the world. Absolutely. We need to have a strong academic core to pull things like government researchers, things like government diplomats. The, the concept is good. Where did the concept lose track of what's going on in the real world, especially as the world changed from the Cold War to the War on Terror era to now where we have real world things like the Chinese where they're an adversary? Right. So I really think the mission started to change after the Cold War ended. And this was a problem that many of the scholars working at these centers uh, realized that once the Cold War ended, the mission of the centers also ended. And there was concern that many of these centers would close. And so in the 90s, the early 2000s, uh, there was discussions of rebranding the centers to focus more on, quote, international education. Again, they thought that maybe people could learn more about the world 
And there's not an issue with necessarily learning about different cultures or different uh, different customs, but its connection to national security is a, a little bit fuzzy. And this was the way to continue the importance of the program. And then, of course, after 9-11, there was increased interest, especially in Middle East National Resource Centers. And uh, so, again, more government funding was pushed to those uh, to those centers specifically. But again, there's so many people before me who have documented the bias of these centers. And uh, after after the 2000s, funding got cut to many of these national resource centers. But again, we've never really gotten rid of the funding. And my argument is that, well, it's time it's time to cut federal funding for these centers. Yeah, me too, Arnold. Before we get into the problems, if it was a perfect thing that ran perfectly, which we know there's no such thing, especially when a government bureaucracy gets involved, what should they look like if they were functioning properly? Because, it, it, you know, it's kind of like counterfeit money. You know, the banks don't teach people with counterfeit money. They show them the real money so they know what the counterfeit looks like. What should the real thing that works properly look like so that we know what these problems look like when we delve into them here in a minute? I mean, I think they should just teach languages and they should focus on uh, issues like uh, security relevant issues to these areas with devoid from ideological activism. And that's what I really document that that's what they're doing now that many of these centers are promoting ideological activism, primarily uh, progressive or left wing ideology. So there isn't even a balance. Um, so that that's what I would say. It, it needs to it, it needs to not be focused on ideological activism. Yeah, but this is the reason it's going to have the ideology in it. Let's be honest here. This is going to be a, a role, the jobs that staff these things. This is going to be very academically heavy. The academic institutions are already leaning to the left for the most part. This is going to be bureaucracy heavy. We know the people in the bureaucracy lean to the left quite a bit. It seems like an inherently built-in problem because, look, we, we talk about the system and the bureaucracy. Well, the bureaucracy is people. And when you're drawing from that pool of people, just demographically, I'm not even knocking it, just math-wise, that's probably what you're going to get for the most part, right? Well, I don't think so, actually. I think uh, the centers back back during the Cold War, during that time, I think there was a lot more objectivity involved in many of the people in the centers. Even if they had one particular view, they were able to teach these subjects without inculcating their own ideology. So I think it is possible, but we've clearly devolved from that. So in the context of today, I would say it's becoming a lot harder. Why is that? So if, if it changed, was there a single, now obviously the Cold War ended, so that was a major change. But you know, that was, a, well, we're pushing 40 years on that now. What changed then that this has become more ideologically, you know, to the left? Why did that change? Did the people change? Was it the circumstances changing? Was it a change in the funding system? What did it? Right. So I think some of it has to do with the people themselves and uh, the normalization of including activism and left wing ideologies in the coursework. And I think um, part of the reason is because of the new left movement, which was pretty which uh, pretty much rose uh, throughout the 60s and 70s. And it many of those people were in college at the time, but now they're adults and they're in these teaching positions. So I would say that's one place for why this activism became involved with, or melded with education. Um, 
I think there's also just more of a focus on um, oppressor versus oppressed, um, you know, those ideologies that have uh, inculcated. And I think some of it also has to do with uh, the funding. So at least for Middle East studies, what I can say is that they started to get more funding from, this is for certain centers, so this is not for all national resource centers, but for a center at Georgetown, for example, they were looking to uh, foreign funders like those in Saudi Arabia, Oman, many of the other Gulf states, and uh, they have specific interests. So I would say some of that would affect uh, at least what the ten centers would teach, though I would say nowadays, the countries don't necessarily need to tell the centers how to teach these subjects or what views to promote because the faculty will do it on their own. Yeah, me too, Arnold, joining us. Let's look at it this way, too. We're talking about ideologies here. Going back to what the core point of this was supposed to be, I think there's a danger. Look, I have no problem that we hash out different ideologies in an academic setting. I have no problem that we hash out ideologies in a political and cultural setting. We need to. That's how our system is right. growing up. That's how growth. We should be debating this stuff out. I do think there's a problem, though, because what happens here is, let's be honest, we're Americans. We get a little myopic and tunnel vision. We tend to see everything through our American filter. And some of these things, some of these ideologies, some of these culture type issues, they don't apply when you start talking overseas and they don't apply when you talk to other countries because other countries struggles aren't the same as ours Their cultural struggles aren't the same as ours. This seems to be when you start trying to just apply the cultural issues of the moment, which is what happens when the ideology shifts to these, which is supposed to be something to boister how we see the rest of the world. That seems like two incongruent things to me at this point in time, the way it's being used now. Absolutely. And I think there's a big misunderstanding of what other people from different parts of the world view different issues and how I don't even want to say how we view it because I don't think it's everybody in America. I think there are many people in this country who would disagree with the way the academic establishment has gone about these issues. And I thought a good example of what I saw here, this disconnect, uh, was when Stanford University's Latin American Center, which again is supported through federal funds, it receives federal funds, um, decided to host a webinar on how we could use picture books to promote LGBT advocacy for Latinx, Latinx, Latinx. And I read that and I thought that was a bit out of touch because even most Hispanics do not agree with the terminology of Latinx. And again, I'm not really sure what that topic has to do with American national security. So I, I would say that's an example where the academic establishment is out of touch with not only everyday Americans, but a lot of people from other countries. Yeah, need to Arnold joining us. 
there's two things that you point out in your piece um, that have changed dramatically that you use to bolster your argument here. I'm going to take them in turn. One you you talk explicitly about. The other one's kind of hinted at, but I want to flush it out a little bit. The first big change from 1958 is a pretty obvious one because it's how we're talking right now. We have this thing called the Internet now. Yes. Um, 1950s, you know, everything's still in books. Encyclopedias is the big thing. Very different environment, very different cultural environment, very different communication environment. The world is way more integrated. Uh, People's knowledge of the world is way more integrated. That's something that hasn't been updated in the way the NRC sees their primary mission, is it? I agree with that. And that's why I say that we're not limited to just the physical classroom or these national resource centers anymore. Uh, I think the internet, uh, love it or hate it, uh, it's it's been a way to connect people. And uh, people who want to learn about different cultures could go, easily go on YouTube and watch some YouTubers. And I, I, I get that the criticism might be, well, there could be disinformation. How do you know what's true and what's not? And I think we have to have a little bit more faith in people that they can evaluate what's true and what isn't. You go on YouTube, if something is false, people in the comments will easily let you know. And I I think it it can be a good platform to see other cultures as they are, like in in their actual environment, free from the political correctness of the universities. Uh, it, It can allow people to make their own choices, make their, make their own, uh, or come to their own opinions about the way the world works. Yeah. Nate Arnold joining us. The other one, and you kind of hinted and talked about a little bit, but I want to really bring it out here is we, the American people have changed. We just had the new census data come out. Not only is um, what would previously be considered minority groups growing, the nation is diversifying very, very rapidly. And part of that diversification is, and you mentioned it in your piece, we have more at least bilingual, if not multi-language speakers than we've ever had before. You mentioned a couple of other places, uh, the Education Department's Language Resource Center, the Pentagon's uh, Defense Language Institute is considered an elite institution for decades. They're very good at what they do. It seems to me that there should be some recruiting of them. This could also fall into a, you know, where we talk about the visa situation where we get some of these folks into our country that are that can do these sorts of things. There seems to be multiple ways to address this, especially with a diversifying country, lack of a better term. We can do some of this in-house now, can't we? Yes. And again, I want to bring up some numbers here just to provide more context. So we do have more bilingual speakers in this country than ever before. In 2018, 67 million people were speaking a second language at home. Uh, Some of these languages were Hindi, Chinese, Arabic, which are all languages deemed critical by the Department of State. Uh, So I want to bring this up again. 2018, 67 million bilingual speakers. Uh, This is compared to 2000, where we had 47 million bilingual speakers. So 20 million increase. Uh, I think we could draw upon these individuals. You know, I think of people like my parents who are uh, native or they, they have native fluency in Hindi. And if you paid them enough to work in these positions, especially during dire times, uh, there would be many people in my community and other uh, bilingual speaking communities who I think would easily take that job. So it's just about paying them enough and uh, the, the incentive structures should be there, but we're not in this dire situation 
of the 1950s where we don't have the internet, we don't have that many bilingual speakers acro across the spectrum of the various languages that exist. Uh, we have a lot of options nowadays. So it, I, I think the National Resource Centers, they really rely on the narrative that if we got rid of these centers, if we got rid of the funding for them, that we would be thrown into this knowledge crisis, which I, I don't think that would be the case. Right. So as usual, when you're dealing with a government program or a government institution that this is, you're dealing with funding and you're dealing with power structures because people don't want to give up their little hamlet of power. Right. I don't want to put anybody out of a job. That's not what I'm saying. It seems like there's some redundancies in these centers. Like we said, there's some other things we could step up. There's other things that overlap and can take the burden on them. You know, it's easy to just say, let's eliminate something because, you know, <laughs> you don't have to do all the red tape and you don't have to write a law. Right. But if you're going to eliminate it, this does seem like a program that can be absorbed into other parts of government, either by expanding other parts of government, expanding where it already overlaps. This doesn't seem like this would be a giant gaping hole if we got rid of it. This seems like something that just needs to evolve to the natural next level to me. It, I think it's realistic to assume that we could cut funding or even eliminate the funding for national resource centers, and that's because we've already done it before. In 2010 or 2010 or 2011, uh, there were major cuts to uh, Title VI funds, which is some of the funds for the national resource centers. Uh, I believe it was a 40% cut, which is major for federal programs. And my view is that if we could do it once, we could definitely do it again. And as you say, there are redundancies here. So again, either we cut the funding or some some of those funds could just go to other departments, but there is no reason to have these redundant institutions, especially when they are not teaching things that are relevant to national security. Yeah, need to Arnold joining us. Uh, let's go back to big picture where we started after going through, you know, policy stuff and, and bureaucracies. You got to wait through a little mess to get through and people's out. Let's go back big picture for a second, because I think it's a fair criticism that the worldwide literacy of the average American is probably not where it should be. As far as, you know, our place in the world, how the rest of the globe does things, how other cultures do things. I think that's a fair criticism. I am an American. I love my country, but I've also lived overseas. So I've got to see it from that side looking back in. I think that's a fair problem. What would be a good way to address this, not just bureaucracy-wise, because that's always going to get took over and you get mission creep like you talk, culturally, the way we deal with our social media, the way we deal with intaking information. We already talked about it. We have the internet. We can look up anything at any time instead of just you know doing cat pictures and yelling at DC. What's some things that the average person can do on their own to raise their worldwide literacy, for lack of a better way to put it, which is actually the core value of what this was doing in the 50s was, hey, we as a country need to pay better attention to our place in the world. What can we do individually to just go ahead and do that on our own now? I mean, I would say, you know, maybe this is just my view on this from the people I've spoken with. I actually think they know quite a bit about the world. And there's a lot 
less understanding of the way things work here in America, whether that be the way our government works. Uh, you know, for example, I work on student loans, uh, the, the issue of student loans, and there are many people who don't realize that uh, federally backed student loans, that's that's paid by the taxpayers, uh, that, that connection isn't clear. And there's a lot of lack of understanding even about our own history in this country. Um, whereas I see a lot of people and they seem to know something about another place or the food of another culture, because we have a lot of that here in America. So I, I do think some of this just starts from, uh, you know, in K through 12 education, having a uh, uh, better reading education. Part of learning about other regions in the world requires knowing how to read and be because you can read a lot of these things in books on the internet, uh, watching YouTube videos. I think YouTube is a great tool for this where people talk about their experiences traveling to other parts of the world and even people from other parts of the world will comment about their experiences. So I, I do think it's about having a stronger K through 12 education system and uh, just more reading. Yeah. And I think this is, uh, this is one of those things where we bash the internet and we talk about all the kids are always online and stuff. I look, my two youngest are teenagers right now. I'm telling you, they're way smarter than I was and they know more and they, and yes, there's a lot of silly on TikTok, but there's also stuff on there that piques their interest and they go look it up and dig into it further cultural stuff. So I think this is partially a cultural change that, um, and our government is always slow to adapt to cultural change, but yeah, the generation coming up next, you know, my kids generation, they got no problem. If you tell them something, they go look it up and fact check you on the spot. So I think some of yeah. that might be coming. Um, just to put a cap on this, you wrote about the national resources and we're going to put the piece up in the links, wall street journal, read the whole thing for yourself. She also has quite a few links in there that you need to click through a lot of data on there, read it, make up your own mind. Like we already said, which would be the fix with this? Would this be a administrative fix with the bureaucracy? Would there be, need to be a piece of legislation? Um, if we were going to pare down and or eliminate this and or fold it into other programs and somehow do it that way, what's the remedy here? Is it administrative? Is it legislative? What do you think? I think it's more legislative. Uh, I, that's what's been done previously. So I would think that's where the change would need to be. Uh, obviously, in the shorter term, if uh, we can't just eliminate federal funding for national resource centers, then the Department of Education should strip funding from centers, so individual centers that are not meeting the national security needs. They're either distracted, they're presenting, they're, they're misusing funds for topics that are not even related to national security. That is something the Department of Education could do. Me too, Arnold. Uh I love these topics because there's so many of these programs like this that they kind of outrun their their original program and they just keep going and going. It's the old uh, Reagan line about the closest thing to eternal life is a government program. Here we got one of them. Could be useful, needs to be looked at and dealt with. We appreciate it when you bring things like this to our attention. Uh, we'll definitely have you back. Enjoy talking to you. Until we get you back on Hertel again, though, let folks know where they can keep up with you, what you're doing, what you're writing, and how they can follow you. Yes. Well, thank you for having me on. And uh, to follow my work, you can either visit the National Association of Scholars website, which is www.nis.org. And you can follow me on Twitter at N-E-E-T-U underscore Arnold. Yep. And we'll link to all that. Make sure you follow her on the Twitter and keep up with all her writing and works. 
Me too, Arnold. I really enjoyed this. We'll definitely have you back. Thank you so much for the time today, ma'am. Thank you. Yes, ma'am. Uh, welcome back to Hurt Tell. I'm excited about this one. Uh, we wanted to talk Mike Pence, so we got the guy that wrote the book on it. Literally, in this case, he's got a book out, Piety and Power. Uh, he wrote the book on Mike Pence. We're going to talk Mike Pence. Tom Lobianco, he is a political reporter with Yahoo News. Good guy. Comes highly recommended from our mutual friend, Eric Garcia. So we'll say hi to him. How are you, my friend? Appreciate your time today. Thank you. Thank you so much, man. Excited to be here. Uh, joining us from an undisclosed moving location because he's a busy, busy man, but that's okay. Um, Tom, take us back because a lot of people didn't know who Mike Pence was pre-Trump. So all they know is Trump era Pence. Yeah, That's not the Indiana Pence. Take us back to Indianapolis. Take us back to Indiana. Yeah. Who is Mike Pence and where did he come from? Oh, boy. Great question. You know, when I wrote the book um, and... I was, you know, doing my research and I'll, I'll just, you know, quick, quick background around me. I, uh, you know, I've been covering Mike Pence for 11 years. I get this question now occasionally. They're like, why did you pick Mike Pence to cover the world's most boring politician? And the short answer is I didn't, I didn't exactly pick him to cover. I was, um, I was a, um, uh, uh, on contract with the AP covering the state house back in 2011. Well, so Mike Pence, you know, when I was covering him, I always underestimated him. And we all and we also had a bigger race out there too. This Dick Luger Senate race going on back in 2012. And I focused more on them because that's where more of the action was. Um, but what I found with Mike Pence as I was doing the research for this book, as I was the more that I covered him, and the more I saw him in a different light, you know, the more that I saw him in a in a Washington light as well as an Indiana light, I stopped underestimating him. So a couple things to know on Pence which I think we in the press sometimes miss, and there's a reason that we miss him. And I, I think, I also think it's purposeful too. I mean, he's a very calculated politician, even at this moment, is you don't have to be exciting to be successful sometimes. You have to know your audience. And I, you know, I've noticed that this week in particular, we're coming off of the, the Trump-Pence showdown, the return to D.C., in particular for Trump, since you know, for the first time since January 6th, I think this was Pence's second trip uh, back to DC since then. I think he did a um, like a Heritage Foundation event last summer. Um, and I see a lot of the coverage saying, Oh, come on, Mike, you missed your moment. You know, this was the pictures of the guy who was sitting in the loading dock calling in the National Guard, calling in the military to put down the, you know, what, what, by all accounts, it appears to have been the first attempted coup, federal coup in American history. Um, where's that guy? Where's Mr. Take Charge? And I've struggled with that. And I get that question a lot. And I think the answer is in his past. And the answer is in his communications and knowing your audience. Because that's not what sells with the Republican voters that he's going for right now. So what, you know, what does sell? 
he's he obviously he seems to think he steady sells, and that's that comes from how he came up in politics. He's a very steady, disciplined, methodical, painfully slow, painfully traditionally painfully indecisive politician. That's how he was as governor, at least. He comes from the way he's done things. You know, he came, he put in a lot of elbow crease to get to politics. He didn't start that way. It didn't run in his family. Um, he kind of he kind of found his way to that. Um, you know, he's from Mike Pence was born in 1959 down in Columbus, Indiana. His family had just moved there from Chicago. Uh, father was the uh, regional oil um, uh, 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 salesman for uh, Keel Brothers Oil Company. Um, and uh, they, you know, the family had, they had four boys in, in, in succession. And then they had two girls, his, his two younger sisters, about 12 years later. So it's almost like, you know, in terms of the, the staggering of the, the siblings, um, it's almost like two families, you know, because of the age difference, 12 years. It, it, it kind of captures the, the, the way that does a lot of politics. Is He's very good at morphing. He's very good at... Um, changing to meet the moment the chameleon you know more so than other politicians every every politician is, is effectively a chameleon because you, you know there's a there's a good reason for that i mean if you are being representative theoretically well, that there's changes that that reflects changing opinions in a, almost a very benevolent reading of things <laughs> let's put it that way <laughs> so my yeah. fence is very good at changing one of the things that he does to cover for that a little bit is he glosses the truth a little bit. And, um, not like Trump. Trump just lies. The Pence has traditionally been better at traditional political spin, which itself is not great. Um, he had a, he would always say on the campaign trail, I'm just a kid. I'm a kid. You know, I grew up in a small town in southern Indiana with a cornfield in my backyard. And that was one of his lines. And I remember thinking, like, I saw Columbus. The first time I saw Columbus, Indiana, it reminded me of, like, Frederick, Maryland, you know? A really nice, small, mid-sized city. You know, it's not huge. It's not New York. It's not L.A. It's not, you know, good-sized city like Baltimore, you know, wherever. Um, but it's also a city. And it's not, you know, like, it's not a one-stop town, okay? And... <laughs> I remember he would say that, and I'm like, well, this doesn't really seem to grab your roots. I mean, that's my, that was my thinking, at least. And I remember I was driving down there doing, I, mean, I was doing some research, and I was driving around Columbus, former neighbors of his, and they were helping me out, giving me a little tour. And we, you know, we go to his house, the second house they lived in, this you know, Rambler. And lo and behold, there was a cornfield behind that house. And I was gobsmacked. I just couldn't believe it. I was like, wait a minute, there's actually corn here? You know? And I was like, well, what? why is there corn? And the answer, fittingly enough, was because Pence's family was doing so well, and good for them, that's, you know, that's what you want, that they kept on moving into the newest subdivision of Columbus as it grew further and further into the cornfields. So as the city cut into the cornfields, they cut with it. You know, they kept on bumping into the cornfields. And they did okay. They had money. His family, you know, they owned multiple marathon gas stations. Um, his father sold them off in the 80s and gave each of the kids a, um, a payout from that, it, you know, about a million dollars each. Um, and, you know, Pence, when he started out, it's 
one of the best observations I've heard um, from folks that know him is that he's very dutiful. He's very uh, he's very orderly and methodical. Um, and you can actually see that in the way he comes up. You know, he goes, he attends a, a Catholic uh, a middle school, Catholic grade school down there in Columbus, St. Columba, and then uh, then transfers into Columbus North, the, the big public school later um, in the late 70s, mid, mid late 70s. Um, and his, his, uh, his debate teacher back then, his, his, his teach, uh, coach and um, teacher in middle school, I always talk about how wonderful he was at remembering things and wonderful he was at, the, at understanding and grabbing the details and repeating them back. And, you know, anybody who's listened to a Mike Pence speech and, you know, they're not exciting. Um, and I've been listening to him for 11 years. They don't, they have not changed an awful lot. Um, knows that he's very good at repeating things back almost verbatim. Um, so that's kind of like how he approaches a lot of things. He's very directed. Um, and, you know, looking, you know, not getting too far ahead of ourselves here, you actually saw that on January 6th. And, you, and, you know, again, you actually see that in the title of his memoir is me coming out. So help me God. It's, it's a reference to his duty to the oath of office. It's the same thing that his top advisor said in January 6th hearings. Mark Short, he chose his loyalty and his duty to the Constitution over his loyalty and his duty to one man, Donald Trump. a trend in his history where influential people would kind of push him in a direction. One of those is a guy named George M. Curtis III. That's kind of is a history teacher for him and at uh, Hanover College in the late 70s, um, 1980 into 81, I think. Um, this is, you know, he writes this thesis um, for him, an undergraduate, called it's The Religious Expressions of Abraham Lincoln. And it's about Abraham Lincoln struggling with how do you match faith with the practice of politics. Um, and you read that and you see, and you, what I heard at least is you hear Mike Pence struggling with that. It was really, it's really fascinating. It's, 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 it's also kind of hard to find. Um, they, put those, they put them under copyright down at the Hanover Library. <laughs> um, and you see Pence internalizing things. That's the way I read it, 37 pages. And again, great research. He's kind of internalizing this stuff, and it's when he's going through his own change. You know, he's grown up, he's been raised Catholic. Um, and of course, you know, Catholics highly dogmatic and um, low Bianco, you know, <laughs> but I get that. <laughs> and he, but he does start this conversion to evangelical, or, you know, or some kind of, you know, non denominational Christian in college. You know, he has what he later. Determines to be a salvation experience. 1978, the Ifis Music Festival in Wilmore, Kentucky. Um, he feels Jesus there. There's a I've heard different. He's given different versions of this, and I, I don't think it's because he's lying. I think I think it's just you know memory doesn't always serve. And um, you know sometimes he, it's an altar call where he you know he feels that. Sometimes he's standing in the rain. Sometimes he's sitting in the rain. But the, you know 1978, he has this is his conversion. This is his salvation experience. 
Um, he doesn't leave the church. He doesn't leave the Catholic Church until 1994, 16 years later. Um, you know, there are all kind of benchmarks along the way that you can use to um, see this. Uh, you know, his, him and his wife meet the Catholic Church, St. Thomas Aquinas, up in the uh, 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 right near Broad Ripple in downtown Indianapolis. They get married in the Catholic Church in 1986, three years later, um, over near the uh, Indy Motor Speedway. Um, and they don't, and for a period of time, that period of time, they call themselves um, uh, evangelical Catholics. You know, going back to this point about people pushing Mike Pence, Karen Pence is the one who really kind of focuses him, kind of puts the blinders on him and gives him some direction because he's always been interested in politics, in philosophy, in history. Um, by now, gets him moving in towards like kind of classical liberal uh, conservatism. Um, he votes for he votes for Jimmy Carter in 1980 because he's the evangelical in that race. Um, but he later says that you know uh, he, he leaves he, he sides with the Reagan after that. Um, and Karen Pence does something similar. You, know, you see that after they get married, um, Pence gets more concerned about po actually practicing politics. So he starts into this running into a race for Congress, 1988. Um, runs again a second time in 1990. And I always thought that these two races, 1988 congressional race and the 1990 congressional race, to me, were always very telling of who the actual Mike Pence is, you know, before he's really put on the mask, before he's, you know, really started, you know, becoming stiff and, you know, a politician, you know, he's more open back then. And, you know, he's young, he's green. Um, and he's very, you know, he follows the rules. Well, I'll give you two examples of this. He starts a machine politics. It's the Dick Luger political machine in Indianapolis. And we, you know, we always think of Democrat machine politics. Well, you know, Republicans are, you know, political operatives too. You know, like it would be so shocking. They would have machine politics. And in Indiana and in Indianapolis back then, in the old 60s and in the 70s, a guy named Keith Bjorn and his protege, Dick Luger, build this machine, a powerful Republican machine. And Pence, you know, is a young up-and-coming operative, um, gets in on the ground floor with them. And they say, you know what? We got this race for you. There's this guy we've been trying to get rid of. He's a teacher in, um, at Ball State University. He's a Democrat. He keeps on winning. We don't think that he represents the, uh, the district. Um, why don't you run? You know, initially, Mike Pence had been thinking, I'm going to have to run for, you know, like city county council or you know like state house or something and then run for congress you know these guys are just like well just run for congress man like nobody else wants to do it because this guy keeps on cleaning our clock <laughs> and, he, and he does so he follows their instructions the next set of instructions he follows is the, the new gingrich campaign school okay he flies to dc in 1987 uh, and uh, he goes and he, he does the training at, uh, at the it's the RNC and the NRCC. It's kind of you know the Lee Atwood or New Gingrich part of this too. The guy who's kind of hands on guys, the uh, former aide and advisor to um, uh, Gingrich, named Joe Gaylord. And they teach you how to run a challengers campaign against these main Democrats. You know this is a precursor to the '94 Gingrich wave. 
and you know, I found the book. I actually bought the the guide on eBay, the the training manual that they used. It's um, uh, uh, flying upside down. The the incumbents, the challenger's guide to defeating incumbents. And guess what that calls for? It calls for tarring and you know, mu- just muddying up your opponents. Smash mouth politics. And guess what? Pence does it. He, he you know, they run the ads. They run the you know, they they does that in the first race, nineteen eighty eight. And he comes miraculously, it seems, within six points of upending this long-term congressman. And they're very, like, they're very, you know, inspired by that. So they keep running into the next one, and they go even nastier. You know, there's this famous advertisement in, you know, intense lore, and, you know, people in Indiana politics know about this. You know, obviously, nationally, more people are learning about this. The, the, The shorthand is called the Arab ad, because this is where he's losing this race terribly from the second go in 1990. And he kind of throws up a Hail Mary. It's like the just the dirtiest ad you could think of. There's a you know, white guy dressed up as an Arab oil sheik, you know, throws on aviator shades and, you know, looks like something out like, you know, with a clash like Rock the Casbah, you know, like something like that. And, uh, you know, I knew some of the guys that uh, helped him on this and helped him on those races back then, you know, talking with me for this. And, you know, he said, you know, even at one point, you know, Pence, when he's coming up for this thing, he's writing the script for this thing. He thought it was going to be funny. He thought it was going to be amusing, like an amusing attack on his opponent. The the attack was that my opponent supports foreign oil. You know, we need to get off foreign oil. You know, it has the ideas that the, the this, you know, the quote unquote Arab oil sheik. And, you know, thanks Pence's political opponent for sending so much money overseas from indiana to you know to the saudis and um pence when he's writing this the initial draft of this thing he wanted to have like two they had the guy have two a two pairs of aviator shades on so that we goes to take off the aviators there's another one underneath <laughs> just like you know and i talked with um uh, zogby zogby falling because he actually believe it or not man um back then um, I forget which group he was with back then. I, I think it might have been before he was as known for the polling. But they, you know, they pointed this out. They're like, my God, I can't believe you're doing this. Like, what? Like, come on. Number one, we fought this in the 88 cycle and most people stopped this, you know. And now you're like, you're two years behind the cycle. You're throwing up a Hail Mary. And this is incredibly racist. Like, what are you doing? And Pence loses by 20 points. And he writes an apology. Which is a very kind of, you know, for him, it's this kind of a seminal moment in his life and career. It, it did an essay. Originally, it was going to be a book, believe it or not, actually. And I was, I'm, I've, I, I, oh man, boy, you got me going now. I, mean, I got like all these things I was like chasing for so long. And I kind of put them yeah. on the back burner. I totally forgot about it. Um, there's, a, there's a manuscript out there of this. There is more. There's more history of Mike Pence that we can find. Folks, if you've listened to the Herd Tell program, you've heard our friend Gabriella Hoffman, but you need to make sure you're checking out her podcast, District of Conservation. It's a podcast exploring the nuances of true conservation efforts from D.C. and beyond. From topic discussions to exclusive interviews with conservation and energy newsmakers, Gabriella keeps listeners appraised of the latest news stories while elevating important voices. Listen to the District of Conservation on Apple Podcasts or wherever podcasts are played. 
mean, there's I, I, I tried to find as much as I could, but there's so much more on him. And I hope that he'll reveal more of himself because he is, you know, he, as it turns out, has become an important figure in American history. Um, so but what ends up coming to this is he writes an essay and it's published in August of, of 1991, I believe, called Confessions of a uh, Negative Campaigner. And this is, you know, he says, and his aides say, let's present this as, you know, atonement. He has apologized in particular Arabad, but but more generally for, you know, he's the attacks that he ran against his, his opponent, Phil Sharp. Um, and this kind of creates this persona of, like, nice guy Mike Pence. And, as, you know, his people say that, like, this is who he is, really. And I think there's a lot of truth. There's a good bit of truth to that. Um, and again, it's always like you always got to go the next step with him in the reporting. You know, you always got to find out just a little bit more. Um, I was doing the reading on this. Like he was using it as like a media tour almost to keep his name in the press. And um, one of the reporters for the Indianapolis Star back then, Pat, Pat Traub, um, said, uh, yeah, I asked him. He said, well, you know, uh, Mr. Pence, um, you wrote this essay, you apologized for the campaign. Have you called up Phil Sharp, your opponent, and apologized to him? And Pence says, no, I have not. And Trump's like, well, okay, so why are, why are we talking? Like, 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 should we be talking to him? And he's like, he's like, well, it's, it's, it's a confession. It's not an apology. I'm not apologizing to him. I'm just confessing, you know, I'm atoning. And it's like, well, okay. <laughs> Now they don't talk about that part, you know. That you know, Mark Short doesn't go on the Sunday shows and say, "Well, it wasn't an apology; it was only a confession." I don't. I, I'm not even sure what the difference is um, myself. <laughs> you know, you only got so much bandwidth to cover these things. <laughs> yeah, there, there's some theological stuff that's really deep right there. But the long and the short of it, to get it into one or two sentences, is yeah. um, you can confess all you want to. If you want forgiveness, there's got to be some communication involved. Um, so if you're not communicating. You're not really after forgiveness. You're after something for yourself. Uh, I didn't need to study theology for 20 years to know that part of it, but that's the long and the short of that one, I believe. <laughs> well, and you know what, man? This is um, this is clutch for understanding Mike Pence because when you understand the faith and his practice, you're easy. It's easier to separate out the politics. Because in a very real way, he doesn't. He does not let his practice bleed into his uh, his faith practice bleed into his practice of politics. And I'll tell you a, a great um, a great little anecdote um, from his 1988 race. Um, uh, Brian Streeter, who is a, um, a senior policy guy uh, for was a senior policy guy for him. He's over at American Enterprise Institute now. Um, he was in college at Bible College up in um, uh, Illinois. I think it was outside Chicago. I can't remember where exactly. Back in the um, late '80s, and he comes back to Indiana, and he's you know he's like twenties or late late teens, early twenties, and um, his family says, "Hey, you know, there's this there's this guy that we know is going to run for Congress. His name is Mike Pence. He's looking for some interns. Maybe you could help him out." And basically, he becomes his driver on the 1988 campaign. And there are these great moments these two have in the car just driving through cornfields out near richmond indiana it's there's actually i forget the, the number of the highway it's actually a, it's a famous highway um it's called like the highway of vice presidents almost because like there's a number so many vice presidents from indiana 
grew up on or near this highway in this stretch from like from Fort Wayne, you know, Dan Quayle's up in Huntington, Indiana, which is up at Fort Wayne up near Michigan, down through um, Richmond, which is like kind of like a parallel to the Ohio border. Um, and they're, they're driving and they have this moment, you know, Pence is still, you know, he's still figuring things out. He's still figuring out his own religion, his own faith, his own personal feelings almost. And um, he's talking with Streeter. He's, he's, you know, versed in the Bible. And you Catholics aren't always versed in the Bible. <laughs> so, you know, we get like that, that modicum of separation from it, to say the least. And um, they're quoting verse to each other. And, you know, he has like, um, I forget the exact verse. Um, it, it, he has it like laminated in his, in his um, glove compartment. <laughs> and like they're, and, Brian Streeter does like a pop quiz on him, asking him to re recite the verse. And they do, he does. He does really well with it. You know, again, that methodical nature of, um, of Mike Pence, that disciplined nature. Um, but one of the things that they're debating around this is how do you practice the faith in the political arena? How do you keep yourself? How do you not lose yourself? I'm really glad you brought this up. I'm really glad you brought, mentioned that. It's like, this is, it's got me going now. It's got the wheel spinning. It's, um, he he's struggling with it and you can see him trying to figure this out and i think about that now because of all the struggling you see him doing in politics and you know with trump how do you do the right thing when do you run for president? Is running for president the right thing? I mean, I do think that, you know, from all my reporting, you know, people make fun of him for this. Um, you know, I've seen some people say that, you know, Pence is a person who believes he's predestined for the White House. And that, based on my reporting, that is not correct. I've, I have not seen that. And everyone I've talked with around him does not. That's not how he works. He does his check-ins. You know, he does the daily check-ins with God. You know, he says, all right, well, where are we going? And, you know, things change. And now, you know, people close to him will tell you that, yeah, that, that's how he does this. You know, he listens, right? He listens for what's the answer. I was talking to Dave McIntosh, the uh, president of Club for Growth. He was um, close with Pence in the 90s. He was still, still close with him. But, um, you know, Pence actually helped him run for uh, Congress in that congressional seat that Pence did not win in 1988, 1990. Pence helps run David McIntosh for Congress in 94. And Pence, and McIntosh does win on the Gingrich wave. Um, and we had a great, you know, we were talking about this because he, you know, uh, McIntosh is an evangelical Christian very much in the same mold as Mike Pence. I was asking him this. I'm like, you know, how do you know when God is telling you something? How do you know the answer? You know, this is not, a, it's, I, you know, I'm so wrapped into politics. You know, my questions are usually like, all right, What's the tracking polls? You know, how much money did you bring in? You know, what's the demographics? What's your voter base? You know, standard, you know, mechanical stuff like that. But, you know, the nice thing about doing this book was like I had some more time to just pause and slow down and, 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 and think about all this. And McIntosh says, he says, you know, it's different for different people, but for a lot of folks, when you, you know, when you know that you have the right answer and this is the one that God is, you know, directing you towards, you feel like an internal peace. You feel comforted internally. You know, it's different for everybody. And that's kind of what I wonder with Pence. 
you know, when it, when people say like, when he says that, like, you know, if we're, you know, am I going to run for president is, you know, one of his, um, his brushaways on that is, well, we're going to keep on checking in with God. Karen and I are going to keep on checking in with God. And I think, I think that's right. You know, I don't think that, I mean, I, I think it serves dual purposes, but you know, it's, I think that's true with his practice. Um, I'm still, you know, boy, I haven't thought about this in a while. <laughs> like, well, I haven't thought about this. In, he's oh. checking in with God, but he also has a staff of 20 and a $20 million budget in an office in D.C. right now, which is basically his campaign and waiting. Let's bridge those two things, though, because we're skipping the middle part. How yeah. did the guy who even the part, and this is why the Republican Party insisted and strong-armed Trump into putting him on the ticket. He's supposed yeah. to be the anti-Trump. He's the true blue evangelical. He's the level-headed one. He's the establishment Thanks, guy. He has the political background from going through things. He has the executive background. Um, that's who that guy's supposed to be. Right. How did he become that guy? So in 2016, I think the, the, thing to, the thing to remember here in particular with that race is that, you know, there are a lot of people who were um, – who were not wanting to be Donald Trump's vice president. You know, I write about this one example in the book where Bob Corker, former Senate Foreign Relations Chairman, goes up to, um, he goes to meet with Trump and he doesn't want to take the meeting because he doesn't want to be with Trump. Right. <laughs> and he's just like, don't come on and do it anyway. And he goes up there and he rides up to, um, he rides up to uh, Trump Tower and meets with Trump. And, um, he basically is very polite and he says, I'm not interested. And after 30 minutes, Trump alerts him. He says, well, the TV camera's downstairs. And he's like, oh, okay, don't worry about it. I won't say anything. And I'll respect this conversation. And Trump's like, well, no, you just go down there and tell them that, that I offered it to you. And he's like, but you didn't offer it to me. He's like, yeah, they don't know that. Just tell them that. <laughs> really? Just you know, that blunt about it. I mean, I've never covered anybody like that in my entire life. You know, hey man, dude, your hair's on fire. Yeah. No, it's not. Yeah. You know, that's basically right. That's the, the ethos of that guy. I, it's really like anyway. So, it's, it, um, but it's so know. contradictory to the what you painted out as Mike Pence. Not to be hard. I mean, there, there's no other logical explanation here. This was a calculated decision on the part of Mike Pence. He did a pros and cons, and he decided this is the wagon I'm going to. Now we understand politically he was kind of dead ended in Indiana for a couple of different reasons. Yeah. He made this decision to hitch up with Trump, and everything from that moment till now is dealing with that decision. No, right? Yes, yes. You know what's fascinating about that is, um, and I write extensively about that. There's a two week stretch in July of 2016 where things kind of come together. Um, the, the Trump campaign plane pops a flat in, in Indiana and he gets stuck there and it's kind of forces him into this, into, you know, sign, signing up fence. Um, and, you know, it's, it's been out, I, put, I put that a lot of that out there uh, already, but I will tell you that when in this decision-making, you know, the, the kind of the calculus 
for Mike and Karen Pensioner too that they they do work as a as a, as a joint operation. It's, it's really the two of them. Um, is that it's the same calculation everyone else is making. It's the same calculation that Mitch McConnell makes. Kevin, not Kevin McCarthy. I'm sorry, Paul Ryan, but for other Republican leaders, which is Donald Trump won't be a problem in four months because he'll lose. Because my God, how could this guy win the presidency? Like everybody's operating under that assumption. And one of our tells on this is that that we know about this in particular is because Pence's Pence's aides are going out there and telling Republican donors lining them up for a presidential run in 2020 saying hey hop on board now get at the table early and you know you'll be there with the possible front runner because pence will have done run on a national ticket with trump at that point theoretically will not have been too politically damaged um and you know there does come you know one key moment of truth i mean you know it's funny to think how how quaint this sounds given all that we know now but you know Think back to October of 2016, the Access Hollywood tape where Trump, you know, talks about, brags about molesting women and popping Tic Tacs so he can molest women. And it's, and Pence has a decision to make whether to hop off. That's probably where he should have gotten off, you know, the train. But he didn't. And they both decided to stay on there. Um, and it was, it was a political calculation. You know, it's obviously they prayed with it too, but it's impossible to avoid the politics of that. And it leaded, you know, led them right to here. Here is, now we have another political calculation. We get to January 6th. We have the riot, the insurrection that was inside of the riot. We, let's not parse all that out today. We have whatever happened with Mike Pence in the building that we're still arguing about. You know, the, did, I'm not getting in the car, all that kind of mess. But mm-hmm. let's just stick to the political calculation part because we know this is fact because it's on camera and we watched him do it. He hung with Trump through everything else up until the point of certifying the election. And that's when he picked his moment to break. So everything between there and there, he was okay with from the outside observer. And you tell me, cause you know more about him than I did. That was, I wrote this to the absolute last possible moment I could. And then I stepped off. That's how it looks to me yeah. as the biographer, as the guy who knows him better than probably yeah. anybody else in the media. Is that how it came across to you? You know, on January 6th, when he wrote that letter, and I remember, you know, I was writing a story, I was in the middle of writing a story about that letter because it sounded like the guy that had been subsumed by Donald Trump. It sounded like the real Mike Pence, the guy that used to study Russell Kirk. That sounded like who he is inside. And I was astounded by this. I was like, wow, where was this guy for the last four years? You know, right or wrong, it's, it's a reflection of character, you know, his character. Um, and then I put, you know, I have C-SPAN on in the background. And I see uh, Niels Lesnevsky from, uh, his, his roll call, CQ roll call. And um, 
He's like, well, we're sheltering in place right now, and I can't really tell you where that is because it's a secure location. And I'm kind of like, what the hell, Neil? Like, what are you talking about, man? Like, and then like I flip around a little bit more. I'm like, oh my god. I'm like, wait a minute, is this real? Like, is any of this real? It's like right after one o'clock on on January sixth, and I'm like, oh god, like. And I thought. As this all unfolded, and as we saw him act on that day, I thought, wow, maybe Mike Pence is finally being himself. And then three months later, he's back on the campaign trail, more or less running for president in 2024, hasn't stated it, not talking about January 6th, calculating again. And I am vexed by this. I really am. Uh, I'm still vexed by this because, you know, again, this week, you know, sometimes we see him have like little flashes of courage where he'll say, you know, Trump was wrong on January 6th, uh, you know, and that gets everybody, a, you know, a Twitter about it. And we all write stories about it. But then he goes back to talking about how, you know, great everything was when they were working together. And boy, wasn't January 6th just a, quote, tragic day. And it's a lack of, um, it doesn't, like, calling it a tragic day doesn't, I mean, would you call Pearl Harbor a tragic day? You know, like, it just doesn't, like, it doesn't ring correct. Um, and I see him struggling with it. Um, but again, the flip side of this, which I, I, I always come back to, is knowing the political audience and what he's trying to do, which is running for president. That's what it looks like. He's not declared. He's not. You know, he, he, he hasn't said it outright, but he's doing the actions. I mean, you don't you don't hang out in New Hampshire, Iowa, South Carolina, you know, Nevada, unless you got the plans, okay? And in some sense, and this will this is what the Trump people will tell you, it's almost like a revenge tour. You know, Trump gets all tries to get him killed or almost gets him killed on January sixth because he's you know staging this coup. You know, this is how you do it. It's kind of it's similar to the the Mitch McConnell calculation. You know, you don't beat Trump, and I, I do think this is correct in the politics moment. If you are on the Republican side, where the vast majority of Republican voters do believe that January sixth is either not a coup or not an insurrection, or you know, a smaller subset believes it's a false flag operation, or you know, whatever. Not there's no evidence of any of that. Um, how do you address that? You know, if you're running for those votes, how do you do that? I always have to bring myself back to that. You know, because like. In this moment in politics, we just don't have clarity in that world, in that side of things. You know, there's not, I'm sure there's a Democrat corollary, but I'm sort of watching this right now. I'm having a hard time finding it. I think I might have been wrong about Pence in this respect because I we always talk about presidential candidates. You got to have a constituency. Doesn't matter your popularity. What's your constituency? Joe Biden shocked everybody because he had the constituency and they showed up, and all of a sudden that race was over in two weeks. Yeah. I always said Mike Pence doesn't have a constituency, but as we've talked through this, the biggest constituency that made Donald Trump president 
was the same ones that we're dealing with with January 6th, was the same ones that Mike Pence is thinking about now. It's those evangelical Christians and Republicans and conservatives, and I'm going to use that term broadly, we'll argue it some other day. It is what it is. That group of people, that outsiders who are not them, the news media, the center, the left, the progressives, they can never figure them out and go, how can you believe this X, Y, and Z evangelical Christianity and still support Y, Donald Trump? Doesn't Pence have a consistent... I think that's who he's shooting for. I think that's who he sees himself as, is, oh, I did it, but I didn't compromise myself. This is his inner monologue, not mine. He's saying, this is how we did it. We accomplished some things. There were some bad things. I broke with him when it went too far, because let's be honest, whoever's the next leader of the Republican Party is is going to be the guy who takes out Trump, because you got to do that to get that job. That's how that's going to go. He is clearly, purposefully... Pointing out, we see it in Arizona, we saw it in Georgia, we're seeing it in other places. He is starting that process now. This is another political calculation. So my question to you is, this is unfair, but it's your job because you wrote the book, <laughs> is which Mike Pence is this? Is this the calculated one? Is this the real Mike oh. Pence? Or is Mike Pence, to use an old wrestling term, has he believed the gimmick because he's been running for president for six years? And this <laughs> is who Mike Pence is now. Does he believe the gimmick? Because I think God. I yeah. think the cultural Christianity Mike Pence gimmick is just who he is after six years of being it. Your oh, thoughts? I'm going to tell you, man, I'm going to tell you great. Okay, so you ready? I did dissect this in the book. And um, it, it's, um, okay, so I had this question too. You know, why is Pence who, you know, goes to Greenwood Community Church in Indianapolis and, you know, 96th Street Community Church, you know, I, yeah, I attended service at 96th Street Church, and I did not hear people, you know, spewing, you know, brimstone and fire and talking about how, he, you know, got a drawn quarter gaze because that's an affront to God or whatever. I didn't, I did not hear that in the service, and I did not hear that from the people that I know that attend service there. You know, it's not, that's not that type of church. And everything I could find is that that's not that Mike Pence's type of practice. You know, I talk a lot about in the book about premillennial dispensationalism because that is a thing that feeds into this concept of Trump as a savior character. You know, even to Pence's people would even talk about him in this sense. You know, when Craig Jacob in January 6th hearing said that he turns to Daniel 6, he brings, you know, reads that. I'm getting tingles right now thinking about it. I get chills, man. It's really, I do. Every time this this comes up in the hearings, man, I just get chills. Um, That's Daniel and the Lions. And look at, and and look who the protagonist is. Pence is a Daniel character to his people. This is how they talk about him. He is a Daniel. He is the, he is the slave who is a faithful servant to the tyrant and to God. Again, the dutifulness. Yeah, I know, man. Right? I, dude, I get chills just thinking about it because there is a depth to the character, but there's also, and you know, there's also a depth to the BS, too. That's also part of it. You know, Trump is such a, you know, such a surface level character that it's easy to forget that there's layers to other humans. <laughs> you know, like Trump is a pretty transparent person. A lot of other people are not, you know. See, that's where I draw the line between Trump and Pence. And maybe this is unfair, but this is just me being, you know, a political observer and an analysis and a writer and a host of media. Mm-hmm. Trump is what he is. He's he's true to who he is, although I disagree with lots of it. I think that's bad. I think it's been bad for the character. He is who he is. 
he, that's his natural state. I don't see any way where the Mike Pence stuff isn't far more calculated. There's just, yeah. and I'm just going off action. There's just no other way to call it. Trump's just doing it the way he thinks he ought to do it. It's it's just who he is. <laughs> Pence is navigating around this, and the problem yes. with navigating around it is you have to be calculated. And the more calculated he is, the more apparent he is that the all shucks, God loves me, me and Ma just trying to get through life here. Yeah. That that last tweet about Trump, that was stone cold. Like he he is more calculated by the day and by the tweet. This is just me observing it as mostly unbiased because I didn't vote for him. Mm -hmm. I think he's getting more and more calculated because this is learned experience for him over the last few years. Yep. I'm with you, man. It's yes, a couple of things on that. He is calculating. And it's it, it, the, the this whatever pre campaign for president in twenty twenty four that we're watching right now, and most people do expect him to run for president. Um, is calculated. He's picking in, in these shots. You know, he did, you know, Brian Kemp showdown in Georgia. And he won that one. You know, he won that proxy battle. Got another one coming up with Wisconsin. He is incredibly calculated there. Um, and it does make me wonder, you know, I still wonder about, you know, who is the core of this guy. There's certain things that, you know, very much, you know, very obvious about is the core of, of him. Pro-life, anti-abortion, 100%. And there's a good and there's a good barometer for that, which is you look at the rest of the hypotheticals in the perspective 2024 field, and they're running away from it. Donald Trump, who, you know, should get the political credit for this, for putting three justices on there, yeah. you know, or arguably McConnell should, anyway, you know, but he's running from it. He's saying we shouldn't be talking about this. Cotton, Pompeo, Haley, all the rest of them. You know, they're kind of running away from this. Pence is running into it. He's running on it. He's holding down, holding that down. That might just be a life raft, but he's doing it. So, and I do think that is part of his core. He has been consistent on that. But the other stuff, I don't know. You know, I still, I still struggle with this. After eleven years of following this guy, like I don't, I don't always know who he is. You know, is he, is he the faithful servant under fire? trying to lead his people through tumultuous times you know another you know another allegory they say another anecdote is um joseph and the pharaoh you know and pence is joseph in that case is it like that i don't know you know that's certainly one way of viewing it you know the flip side of that also or a secular you know way of stating that would be adult in the room you know and I think you have seen some adults in the room where people attempt to be adults in the room. But then you also get <laughs> then you also get Rudy Giuliani in the room. So obviously the adults were not able to keep out the lunatics. You know, and anyone telling me about, you know, changing votes via Italian satellites redirecting through Chinese thermostats is not is not <laughs> no. sane. Sorry. No, no, I'm they're sorry. not. You're fine. Uh, Tom Lobianco, we really appreciated the time. We're going to do this again. I'm going to have you back as soon as you can arrange it because we got a lot more to talk about this and he's running for president. So we're going to be talking about it for two years. Uh, the book is Piety and Power. We're linking to it in the show notes. Make sure you buy it and read the whole thing. Let folks know where they can follow you until we see you again back on Hertel. Yeah, buddy. Uh, Tom Lobianco, I'll spell it. So I got it L O B I A N C O. Tom Lobianco. You find me on Twitter, uh, Tom Lobianco, Gmail, you know. Tilo Bianco, Yahoo Inc. I'm over at Yahoo News, all my stuff over there. And um, 
Yeah, man. Wherever, wherever good quality podcasts are aired around the, around this country. <laughs> yeah, we'll, uh, we're going to definitely have you back. You quoted Daniel 6. I'm a Daniel 3 guy. Y'all can figure that out on your own some other time. Oh, um, wow, man. Right down to the Twitter handle. Everybody always asks me where that's from. That's Daniel 3. Um, we thank you so much for your time today. We'll do it again real soon. Thank you, sir. We'll talk soon. Thank you, Andrew. All the music on her tell is provided under a creative content license from MonsterCat.com. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call. Click Granger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.